0: I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness.
1: Hey, this is associate producer Drew Marr. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can find No End in Sight on Patreon, which is a really simple way for listeners to subscribe to support the show financially on a monthly basis. So, if you've been enjoying the podcast and you also have a couple bucks to spare, we'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Today we'll be talking with Alex Haygard about narcolepsy, mast cells, and inclusive design. A few content notes for this episode. There's some COVID vaccine talk around 45 minutes in, and lockdown comes up around 2 hours and 20 minutes in. There's a mention of Vivance at around the hour mark, and a mention of cannabis at around an hour and 45 minutes in. There are oblique references to suicidal ideation at around an hour and 25 and an hour and 35, and there's a mildly graphic description of a bleeding time test an hour and 50 minutes in. Before we start, here's our disclaimer this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms.
0: Okay, well, I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? Oh, oh god, that's a complicated
2: one. So yeah, I was a sickly little kid, and at the same time my doctor's and my parents really liked to reassure me that I was a healthy little kid never never heard anyone talk about that before on on the void
0: very unusual
2: yeah my whole health journey started when i was 4 And my mom took me into urgent care and they discovered that I had petechiae, which is like a, a pinprick kind of bruising that's most normally associated with bleeding disorders. And they freaked out because for them, it was like leukemia. That was their big association. And so that started me on the whole thing. And I didn't have leukemia. I didn't have AIDS. I didn't have lupus. I didn't have any of the other really scary things that they tested me for. So it eventually got sort of downgraded to idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. And they just sort of left it there for another 20 years.
0: Were you aware at that age that they were looking at considering serious health stuff? Did that imprint?
2: It, it did because my mom does not handle stress or trauma well because she, she's got a lot of trauma. So, yes, I was the emotional regulator for my, my parents. So, mm-hmm. yes, I was very aware of all of that. And
0: it, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. yeah. it was
2: amazing. <laughs> it, it was honestly, it was weird because I was aware, but I also don't think it really like hit me because... Yeah they ruled out the really scary stuff sort of within a span of three months. So there was sort of this period of very scary stuff, but the stuff that was most scary for me about that was the actual physical stuff that I experienced in the hospital, which we we can get into because that was a whole thing too. And then the prospect that I had something that was like fatal sort of dissipated over the course of about three to six months. And then I was left in the position where I was still like, I'm in pain, I'm getting sick a lot. And they were like, no, you're really actually very healthy. So it was... This really weird relationship. I think in a weird way, like because they'd ruled out that fatal stuff, that set me off on the whole relationship that I had to my health, which was not being able to tell whether I was healthy or not.
0: Yeah. It's hard because, like you say, when you're that young, the context for so much of it is like you can pick up the emotional cues of the people around you and interpret them however you interpret those things at that age, which is widely varied, of course. But like, you don't know that, like, Or maybe you kind of know but you don't know what other kids are going through instead if you know that they're not going through this you're like okay but maybe they do have weird bruising it's just not as serious the fact that it's not it's way more binary than that frankly like so much and it is odd too because there was like a little bit of context six months
2: or a year before i was going through that whole thing another kid in my class had been diagnosed with leukemia so i remember sort of like I had that context and like, also as a kid, I didn't see it all that much differently. I remember the parents always being like talking about it in these like really sorrowful tones. And I was just like, oh, this is just the other kid in my class who's sick. Yeah. And then I remember when I was like in fifth grade, there was another kid who had hemophilia. And I remember I was actually like kind of jealous of him because the grownups took him seriously. And I remember like a really fucked up way being kind of jealous of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I've been thinking about this so much lately. And I don't know why because I've known I had POTS for a while, but I'm still thinking about like old POTS memories and like moments when I definitely was probably pre And I'm like, in environments where kids, if anyone had a diagnosed condition, if they had been at that level of like about to lose consciousness somebody would have intervened because somebody would have been watching for that all the time as opposed to being like oh i'm not ready to keep up with the group or whatever it is in these social situations and you're like i can tell that everyone is flagging me as disruptive i know there are many disability contexts where this applies and right now i'm thinking specifically of that one when you're like oh i'm being weird i look dramatic i need to lie down oh my god yes And people are like kids you shouldn't need to lie down get up yeah And you're like, okay, but that other kid who isn't about to faint, but something serious is wrong with them, you recognize that they need to sit stuff out. That's really present for me right now. Yeah, it's
2: a really weird feeling. You know, I talk a lot about how we distinguish between medically visible and medically invisible disability. And I mean, I think that foundation was laid like as a kid, as I was seeing how differently adults responded to some of these illnesses and conditions. So there was literally this one time I, I did swimming lessons and whenever I had to have an endurance test, I'd get sick. That was like the how you leveled out of, of whatever bad you were in. And they did the endurance test where you had to do like 20 or 40 laps within a certain amount of time. And I would always get sick. I'd always start wheezing. And then one time I like fully collapsed in the change room. And apparently I was like screaming about how I was dying and stuff. And like somehow not one of the adults in the change room was like, hey, maybe we should phone 911 or something. I don't know. Just like (laughs) call a
0: lifeguard. Yeah.
2: They just sort of like stood around laughing. And like eventually someone got my mom and I like told her she had to take me to the toilet because I was like incontinent by that point. And then I told her she had to get me into the shower and cool me off. Like I somehow knew this. I knew I needed to get cooler. And like looking back, I'm like... Someone should have phoned an ambulance. Why did no one phone an ambulance? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, just how did everybody
0: interpret that scenario? Yeah. I and I, like, I've fainted in public more than once at this point, too. And I'm just, it's weird. It's weird how people react, especially to, like, everything that they think is going on in the yeah. circumstance and whether or not they think that you are somebody who needs help in that moment. Because I feel like yeah. I've had both reactions totally
2: yeah i've close to fainted once in public and that was in high school and this is the thing i've never full-on fainted but i've gotten to the point where like i semi-consciously laid down right like i i still i would consider that fainting because it was like i lay down at the point where i knew if i didn't lie down i was going to hit my head but like technically i was still conscious because i could hear things and i remember this was in high school and i was in the hall in the middle of lunch and i sort of like crumple laid down on the floor and i heard people stepping over me and being like "Ooh, she's really sick I mean, like, okay, so, like, could someone get a teacher? Yeah, like, (laughs) Like, maybe I don't know. What is the protocol for this? (laughs) God, yeah, yeah. And then I remember one time I was like, when I lived in Toronto, I stopped doing it because I I figured people were gonna figure I was drunk or something. This is the other thing too. I sort of learned very quickly that people would just assume I was drunk or high or something. Mm -hmm. So, like, one time I was on my way to an exam and I got overheated on the TTC because TTC in winter, like coats and everyone and then it gets delayed and I had to run off the train and go lie down on the floor of the bathroom which is just like floor of subway bathroom is not a place you want to lie down and I had to go and like write a three-hour exam after that it was just not great like I'm was... covered
0: in bathroom and I do not want to be. Yeah.
2: <laughs> really yeah. don't want to be here right now <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah no definitely the transit is the worst <laughs> Okay. I could think about that a lot more, but okay. So as a kid, you're like going through this and you're very, you are becoming increasingly aware of like the dynamic between your health that you're like, maybe you have good words for this. There's just dissonance between what you are aware of your body doing and the way everyone else. I mean, that's what you were just describing. There's a huge (laughs) dissonance as you're moving through the world. Like My vision is spotty. I can't make full sentences because there's no I mean, obviously also you probably don't know that this is why it's happening, but my vision is spotty. Blood isn't getting to my brain and I'm trying to like move through the world like a biped and it is not happening. And everyone around me is just like, ha ha, good luck with that. And then this isn't like an oppression Olympics thing. It's just that like as an experience, you're like, oh, there's distinct things going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it was also
2: so interesting because there was this dynamic where I think because I had that experience of potentially serious sort of medical issues as a kid, there was also this interpretation that as I kept complaining about health issues and talking about the things I was experiencing, I think a lot of the adults in my life Interpreted it as like anxiety born of those experiences i would had that I was worried because I remember one time they tested me. This was when I was a little bit older. I was in my teens and they tested me again for the markers of lupus. It was the ANA test. And I remember I'd asked them, you tested me for lupus when I was like five. Does that mean I could still develop lupus? And they were like, yeah, it's a possibility that you could still develop it at some point. And I remember sort of talking to my parents after the fact. They were like, oh, you're still anxious about getting lupus. I'm like, no, I'm just curious but there was this assumption that I was sort of like experiencing anxiety and that what they were trying to do was reassure me. And I was like, no, I literally just want answers. Like, why does my leg feel like it's popping when I go up the stairs? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's like other people are trying to answer the question will something serious happen and you're Mm. actually asking the question is this thing that's happening now serious yes (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and they're like no no don't worry like you don't need to worry about your health future that's in the future you know live in the now and you're like no i'm talking about the now (laughs) yeah that's what i'm talking about (laughs) and do you feel like something that i think is really interesting as how that can affect different people. Do you feel like you yourself are pretty confident that you were having physical sensations or were you starting to be like, huh, do I just interpret my body in a very, I don't know the right word here, like concerned way? I would say I was like
2: pretty confident in how I was interpreting my body, like right up until my late teens, like in undergrad. And then It's like complicated because I was always the weirdo freak outsider. I didn't have friends. I was also autistic and I'm diagnosed with that too. I literally did not have a friend group that stuck around for more than like maybe a year at a time, at which point they sort of get sick of me and, or realize they could get more popular by hating me. I was just sort of in my own bubble and like, there was something to that. And then I got to university and I made friends for the first time but it was also very like I was masking I was making friends through masking and they tease me in a good natured way the way that friends do about like oh you're such a hypochondriac and like because they were now my friends I started to like internalize that more yeah I was also in pre-med and so I was getting exposed to that culture of patients always think there's something wrong with them so there was that
1: yeah
2: and then I also started dating my ex-partner who was also a pre-med we were in the same program and who came from a family of doctors Hmm. who had very specific ideas about patients and illness and what those things mean and all of those sort of through my late teens and early 20s I started to shift and stop believing myself Mm -hmm. and lost touch with what I was feeling in my body even as that was exactly when my illness was sort of ramping up
0: yeah (laughs) I I also think I know at least for me like one thing about moving to a new environment at that age, is like there's so much distracting junk going on. There's so many different things influencing your body. It's easy to just be like, oh cool, this new environment feels different. I have a different bed, I have a different bedtime. So many factors that are like, cool, this is what it feels to be here now. When
2: people ask me when my narcolepsy started, I straight up can't answer because for such a long time, I thought it was just, oh yeah, everyone's tired in school and everyone has a fucked up sleep cycle. It wasn't until I was literally sleeping like, 14 or 16 plus hours a day and like missing meetings because I'd fully slept through my alarm that I was like, oh, something is like definitively wrong here. There's like maybe two or three years, maybe even four years before that, where I I don't know to what extent that was like, my brain was starting to have issues literally, or Mm -hmm. it was just like, I'm someone who deals with fatigue and was also in like a very sleep disordered environment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I find it very hard to look back at school. I went to architecture school, which is, I did not know, but like notoriously basically abusive as an environment. It has a huge hazing culture. And as a profession, it has a huge hazing culture. And I was just like, oh, this is really difficult. And everyone around me would be like, during finals, right before reviews in studio, would be like, I haven't slept in five days. And I'd be like, I slept for five hours last night and I'm in so much pain. What are you talking about? Yeah. They'd be like, oh, ha, ha you can't stay up all night. What's that about? Like, I think I was the youngest person in my year in my program. Oh my God. My birthday's at the end of December. You know, a couple people were like a few years older. Like, what do you mean you can't yeah. stay up for three days? Like, you must just be flawed. And you're like, yeah, you're- my desire to succeed in school is the problem here. That's right. <laughs> So at some point, were you like, huh, or did you not have a choice?
2: So basically, I had an existential crisis in my final year of undergrad, but I didn't realize exactly why I was having it. I was also fully determined to go to med school, and I applied. I I got in, and I was like, I can't do this. I was like, just freaking out, and so I decided to apply to design school instead. I actually I applied to RISD for their undergrad in... Can't remember which program I applied there. I was like, you know what? They're like the top. If I can get in, that's like, I was like, I'm proving to myself that I can do this. This is a a valid choice for me. And I did get in. And then I went to the bank. I was like, hey, can I have two hundred thousand dollars to go to a private art school in the states? They were like, no. Yeah. Sorry. They're like, I've never heard of school costing that much. I was like, okay. This is like in North Durham, like rural Ontario.
0: and Ontario in general. I mean. Graduate degrees in Ontario... Graduate degrees at U of T can be pretty expensive, but like undergrad in Ontario... Not like cost of a house expensive. (laughs) Yeah. is never that high. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Not for an art degree. They're like, you want to spend it on what? (laughs) And you're you're
0: like, listen, it's a good school and that matters, which it does. But also one thing that I've learned is that chronic illness really interferes with your ability to maximize a network.
2: (laughs) I, in hindsight... I spent a really long time feeling guilty for not, like, when I was sort of living in poverty as, like, a designer who couldn't get my career off the ground, I spent so much time feeling guilty for not going to med school. But also, in hindsight, I'm like, I would have been $200,000 in debt and not able to do a residency. I would not have made it through. I am so, so glad I had that existential crisis.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I 100% hear you. And it's weird when you're (laughs) still undiagnosed, and you're like some parts of school are hard, but it doesn't seem to be the parts of school that other people struggle with. So like, how do I anticipate? Is this grad program a good choice? Like, how could I possibly make that decision? Because I don't know what my body needs or why it seems to be different than other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
2: also didn't love my master's program. There was a lot of ableism. My thesis was on design for healthcare. And it was not nearly as critical enough of the healthcare knowledge practices that I now spend all my time critiquing and it could have been so good and I regret that so much. <laughs> but the one thing it did give me was like critical theory and the language to realize why I was so deeply uncomfortable within my undergrad, which was the ableism of the culture and the ways of knowing and the ways in which they erased patient knowledge like systematically. And so it gave me that and I finally had the language to be like, oh, this is why I like could not survive in medicine. And also, It's really weird because I still love medicine. It's still, like, my favorite topic, but I like it as an observer and a critic, and I cannot be in that space, so.
0: Yeah. And, like, it's so complicated how, like, there's the difference between medicine and healthcare, a really big difference. And it's hard to be, like, how could medicine be practiced within our community in a way that would be generative? And then you're, like, can that happen within a healthcare system? And then you're, like, I don't, like, (laughs) that's not confused. (laughs) these are different priorities (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh yeah and so did you did you go straight through just like timeline wise at this point you've kind of been like I am a full-time operating human (laughs) yeah so I took one year between my
2: undergrad and my grad because I had decided at that point to pivot into design but obviously I needed to apply somewhere that I could actually afford to go yeah so I spent like a year working in retail in a Yuppie dog store near High Park in Toronto. It was on Bloor. Yeah. It was literally like right beside the park. So it yeah, was yeah. just big houses, lots of very well taken care of dogs with collars that cost more than my rent.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, when I first moved to Toronto, I actually moved into one of the like very tall high rises near High Park, which are not nice. expensive, but are like yeah. it's such a weird land use thing. But that was my first neighborhood and I was like, this is the weirdest neighborhood ever.
2: I love like honestly, those high rises are
0: so nice.
2: And the park was so gorgeous and then yeah then there was just like the huge huge houses yeah and yeah literally one time we had a dog come in that was wearing like an hermes collar i was like okay my rent is 500 and i can barely afford that but sure fine that's
0: great yeah yeah Yeah. <laughs> no, toronto's weird <laughs> separately yeah because i lived like north of bloor but like across from the park and so i was just like mm-hmm. haha i can see your beautiful neighborhood <laughs> from the edge of my balcony And it was good. That's just my important fact to add to this designer dogs (laughs) in Toronto discourse. Okay, yeah, and you've been having an existential crisis. You're thinking more about design. Do you feel like, were you consciously thinking about what was going on with your body at that point? Or was that still very much like, maybe you're aware of it in retrospect, but it wasn't, like you weren't thinking those words at the time.
2: I was sort of repressing it until probably like the end of my first year of my master's. I had sort of a moment of clarity when I was also doing a research assistantship and like my boss was actually like really cool. But the the other students I was doing the research assistantship with got furious with me because I had flaked out, quote unquote, on Mm -hmm. a morning meeting because Mm -hmm. I slept through my alarm for three hours. And I was like, okay, this is not right. So I like went to the campus clinic and I was like, I think I need a referral to someone. Yeah. And it was at that point that they referred me to a sleep specialist. And I sort of started going through the process of getting the sleep disorder diagnosed. Oh. It was with the sleep disorder because it was so overwhelming. It was not something I could neither ignore it. And I also could not control it no matter how hard I tried. So it was at that point I started realizing like, no, there is something deeply wrong here.
0: Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> And Toronto, I mean, this is loaded for a variety of reasons, but Toronto's a good place to be, all things considered, if you yeah. have a medical issue. Depending on what's going on with your body, one of the best places in Canada, it probably be best. Plus, it's covered. Yes.
2: <laughs> that is helpful. Anyway, so yeah, I, I got referred to the sleep clinic. And honestly, this sleep clinic was, it was not good. Because they did the first sleep test, and they diagnosed me with idiopathic hypersomnia, which that doctor told me that it meant what it sounds like. Essentially you sleep a lot and we don't know why. They'd ruled out narcolepsy somehow. I don't know how they managed that, but they'd ruled out sleep apnea. They still insisted on trying me on a CPAP machine for a month, despite the fact I had lower than average apneic events, which was wild. But that is also sort of the healthcare cycle. Like they have to rule out the common thing because that's the thing they can get funded for. (laughs) They can get funded for like prescribing you the CPAP. They can get that partially covered, whereas prescribing an off-label drug a little bit
0: dicier sometimes yeah like no mechanism
2: yeah and so like I tried the CPAP I literally could not sleep with CPAP and I think for sensory reasons because again undiagnosed I could not sleep with it Mm -hmm. and I remember like they asked me to keep a journal and they yelled at me I had to come back and do the next sleep test to test how it was working for me and they yelled at me for how little I used it and I was like look I'm struggling to stay conscious already and i cannot sleep with it and they like got so angry and they lectured me about it and then they had me do the sleep test and the next morning they're like oh yeah you didn't enter deep sleep at all and i'm like oh shit sherlock i told you this <laughs> yeah
0: like this is what we were talking about before. <laughs> yeah
2: this is why i was not using it this month yeah so it was obviously not sleep apnea either so idiopathic hypersomnia they prescribed me modafinil It was not working well for me. So they cycled through a couple other drugs and they were not working. And then after about like four or six months, that doctor told me I just wasn't trying hard enough to control my sleep cycle. And Mm. it was probably also because of my depression. Mm -hmm. And I found out a few years later that he'd written in my file that I'd agreed to to continue working through this with my therapist. I didn't have a therapist. (laughs) So like, like, not sure what. (laughs) When did this conversation happen? Yeah. So I sort of gave up again then for a few years. At that point, I knew there was something wrong, but I also just, it was so frustrating. And that was sort of where I'd I'd gotten with my chronic pain and my bleeding stuff around university. I sort of gave up because through high school, I kept being like, okay, but so why am I bleeding so much? I was still trying to find answers. I was doing my baby version of my research where I was like, hey, have we tested me for this? And I sort of gave up once I hit university because I was like, I can't deal with this and it's too much. And then I sort of started repressing it. And then the same thing happened with the sleep thing, which was like, I realized there was something wrong, but I also didn't feel like there was any way for me to get help. And it was too stressful and awful. So I just sort of managed it as best as I could, which was by sleeping on, again, the bath, I have a really good relationship with bathroom floors, (laughs) sleeping on the bathroom floor at work during my lunch break. And... (laughs) Sleeping for literally 23 hours on my days off and then just like waking up long enough to go down the street and get McDonald's. Yeah,
0: you're like, I am thriving. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) doing well. (laughs) Yeah, And also, I think it's worth noting compared to now is that certainly in high school and then kind of in university there was no social media and there was certainly like the modern internet didn't exist I personally was using live and dead journal in high school but I was not like hello where are the scientific med research (laughs) communities which very well may have existed (laughs) but I was not looking for them at like 15.
2: This it's so funny you say that because that is literally that is the moment when I started actively identifying as disabled and like I switched into chronically ill fighting for answers mode i think i was just googling idiopathic hypersomnia to try and learn more like see if there were any other options and i came across this medium article that was profiling someone who had it and who was one of these sort of first patient activists with idiopathic hypersomnia and talking about how there was research going on at blanking on the name of the school, (laughs) Emory, that's the one. Okay. (laughs) It turned out at Emory, they were doing research and they found that some people with IH have this novel peptide in their cerebrospinal fluid that essentially acts like Valium, like it literally works like they're under constant twilight sedation. And it was talking about this one patient who they tried administering a drug that is normally used to bring people out of anesthesia post-OR. Mm-hmm. And it had been, like, miraculous for him. And it wasn't perfect because I think he was able to take it for, like, four weeks on and then we have to do a two-week med holiday. Otherwise, it would lose efficacy. Mm -hmm. But he was talking about how he was able to be conscious sometimes now. He was able to exercise again. And I was like, it wasn't even so much that there was the hope of a treatment. But it was like, okay, so there is something real. It's not just you're sleeping a lot and we don't know why it is. It's not just your depression. Like, it was okay there's something real and physical going on here and the article mentioned that there was a Facebook group for other people with idiopathic hypersomnia and that it like started the whole thing and I sort of started out it was like very much a chronic illness only not like disability oriented space but after reading that article I started identifying myself as invisibly disabled to friends and family and pushing back when they'd be like, Hey, maybe you should just exercise. Or like when my classmates were like, Hey, have you tried this algae supplement? Cause I was in art school. And of course everyone was like, have you tried gluten-free? Have you tried like drinking algae every morning?
0: Have you tried like going to Pilates? Yeah. There's (laughs) a lot you can do. Is your diet raw?
2: Hot yoga. Like that, that sounds perfect for me. (laughs) Heat and bending your body in in odd ways.
0: (laughs) I've never been to a hot yoga class, but like there's a significant time in my life when I very likely could have. And I now feel very grateful that I did not do that because it would have been a very bad idea.
2: I remember like reading about that when it became a trend and being like, why is everyone not passing out in that? And like that also (laughs) probably should have been a hint. (laughs) Just the idea of exercising in the heat. I'm like, why are people not actively dying when they do
0: (laughs) this? Yeah, yeah, this is relaxing for you. (laughs) <laughs> hmm, hmm. We have a very narrowed band of comfortable temperatures that I suspect this will be outside of it
2: <laughs> Yeah, But yeah, so I joined that group And I started just posting And like being somewhat active there And that was like my first exposure To just like chronic patient communities And the fact that this thing that I'd been told Was literally psychosomatic Was not and could not be So in the three years after my master's, I basically just worked at the dog store and, like, did short-term little research contracts. Because this is the thing, too. If you're trying to make it as an artist or designer, so much of that is about, like, building your portfolio with spec work or work that you can submit to shows. And, like, networking and, like, inviting the fancy curators into your studio for a studio visit. I think the students who got the most out of our program were the ones who were, like, producing stuff and inviting the people who were connected to the department in for like critiques and making connections to get invited to gallery shows and I was just there like sleeping on the couch that I'd hauled up from the basement and put in my studio yeah <laughs> just sleeping in the studio and so yeah I was like struggling to build any kind of career because I couldn't do any of those things that you need to because no one will just hire you off of a degree in that field and working, working retail, sleeping in the bathroom. (laughs) And then I I started tutoring students in Forest Hill, which is like the other rich area. So for very good money for about six months, that was like the most financially comfortable period of my career. (laughs) And then I got offered a job in the UK for a research contract and I jumped at it because I'd sort of always wanted to go see the UK and like travel a bit. And it also felt like finally building towards something more permanent in my career. I hadn't really thought about what immigrating means as someone who takes like restricted class medications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So like I got there and they're like, no, we can't prescribe you this. We have to re-diagnose you within the system. And I was like, okay, so can you refer me to a sleep doctor? And like, well, we can put you on the list, but it's a three-year wait list. My contract was 12 months. Yeah. So my first six months there were like fighting to try and access someone eventually thankfully I had parents who could afford to send me to a private clinic and six to eight months in I got in to see that private clinic I, I ended up essentially disappearing from work for a week like AWOL because I I finally run out of my meds and like I could not even muster the movement to call them and be like hey I can't come in yeah <laughs> and so my mother actually had to come and care for me because I was like I I just didn't call work I didn't go to the group I, I had a block of Mars in my cupboard that was what I ate for a
0: week and it's So hard to explain. There aren't words for the feeling of it. I definitely don't have them. I mean, I experience it too, to be (laughs) clear. But like I hear people describing this state of like basically like at home, not able to feed myself. We barely have a language for it because culturally and contextually, that only could be a mental health problem. Yeah. Totally. Either you have an injury, so like you're in a full body cast, or you're so depressed that you can't feed yourself and I'm not maligning depression. That is a real thing that can happen, especially as executive function breaks down. But like, that's not the only thing happening here. And also when it's happening to you and you're like, yeah, I'm tired, but I should be able to just turn it on. Right. Why isn't that happening? Yeah, that's, it's exactly, yeah,
2: it's exactly it. You know, saying you can't do something, it's either like mechanical, as you say it, like you've broken your leg or you're paralyzed or it's psychological and there's no space for like my brain literally won't send the signals to like yeah there's no language there's no sort of conception of what can't means when it's not just like a mechanical issue yeah it's like oh you don't want to and you can't will yourself to but that's that's not even what it was it was literally like Sleep doesn't work for your body. So essentially you're in a constant state of sleep deprivation. And like, you know, you look at like, what are the stages of, of sleep deprivation like in a normal brain? And I was operating around like, if I'd been deprived of sleep for like 72 hours straight, that was like my baseline. Yeah. So I'd look out the window and I'd see trees walking around. I was actually psychotic and not yeah. in like a colloquial way. Yeah.
0: Not a euphemism.
2: Sleep deprived psychosis for yeah. like
0: several years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was cool in a way, like in a weird way. I kind of missed looking out the window and be like, oh, there's an end.
0: My dream world.
2: <laughs> yeah, literally. And it was like really cool in some ways. I think my brain was never more creative than at that point. And I had so many creative ideas that I've never done anything with because I couldn't do anything. Right. Also. Yeah. Other than like lie there and think dreamily. And yeah, like I couldn't bring myself. motivation or the energy to go shopping but also even if i had been able to i couldn't do it safely because by the time my mom got there i'd sometimes go out with her grocery shopping like just to sort of get out and get fresh air and then like one time i remember we were waiting at a a stoplight and a car honked and i just automatically started walking into the road because it's just like sensory thing like i was literally sleepwalking even though my eyes were open and my mom had to yank me back from the intersection i could not do anything safely yeah I couldn't turn the stove on because I would forget because it was effectively like you wouldn't sleep cook that's not safe everything yeah. I would try to do was effectively like I was doing it in my sleep your
0: short-term memory is not actually
2: like remembering not the train
0: of that you've been doing <laughs> yeah so you can be like okay what is next based on what has happened before nothing has happened before <laughs> the short-term memory thing is
2: a whole other thing because like during this period of a few years sort of before I moved to the UK and it got like really noticeably bad to everyone. Like I would lose things constantly. And I remember like my dad would helpfully be like, well, you just have to put your keys in the same spot every time you come in. And I'm like, you're not understand. I need to then remember what that spot is. And I need to actually remember to do it from the time I get into the door. I can't do that. Like I have yeah. no. <laughs> my habit building
0: mechanisms are not active.
2: Yeah. I'm not conscious of anything. Yeah, <laughs> like-
0: <laughs> yeah, like Bodies. Can I also take a quick diversion just because you yeah. kind of mentioned UK healthcare and Canadian healthcare as you were transitioning in between them. So having lived in both, what was that like? I think because, yeah, people in every country, I will say, like, now I've interviewed people the most from Canada, the US, and the UK, and I've lived in Canada and the US, so I know those two systems better. These three systems are all very different, and most people in those countries know very little about their own system and also their ideas about the other systems are like usually flat out wrong
2: yeah yeah i think maybe the nhs used to be different before <laughs> the tories got in. I, yeah. I will preface it with that before austerity do you know the show the prisoner from the 1960s or 70s, with, like Patrick McGowan. Okay, so he's like an ex-MI6 agent, and he like got on the wrong side of the government for some reason, <laughs> and they imprisoned him in this like surreal village in North Wales, oh, great. and he keeps trying to escape, and like he can't, and he keeps getting caught. I felt like I was in the prisoner, trying to navigate that system. No matter what you did, they had an answer for you, and it was not. Yeah. No matter what you did, you could not make any progress. And it felt literally surreal. And that also possibly was partly due to the fact that my brain was like in sleep deprivation about nothing felt real. But it was just everything I tried. When I was trying to get access to the meds initially and then trying to get a referral, first they just sort of wouldn't give me an answer. They'd say, okay, well, we'll sort that out. And then like two months would go by and I'd call them back and they'd be like, oh no, nothing yet. And so finally it started getting urgent and I was arguing with them and I was saying like, I need these meds to stay conscious. And so I was asking, can I get a, an urgent referral to the neurologist? And they're like, well, no, urgent referrals are only th- for things that are serious. And I was like, right, I literally can't stay conscious Yeah.
0: without these, like, I feel like that's serious. Yeah, how do you yeah. legally define serious is actually yeah. a really great question for every healthcare system, frankly, mm. but in this
2: moment. Definitely, <laughs> it was this, utterly impassive response to absolutely everything I brought to them, then I finally did actually get in to see, they did like a semi-urgent referral, which could be at the clinician's discretion.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I got in to see him and he did agree to prescribe me the modafinil, but was sort of disinterested in any of the other cognitive, physical things I was describing. Because at that point, my, my mass saw symptoms were asserting themselves. <laughs> so he did agree to write me the note for the modafinil. And- Then two weeks later, my GP surgery still had not received it. So we kept trying to phone back to the neurologist clinic and they weren't answering. And then several days later, we finally heard back from him. He, he'd fallen off his horse literally the day after my appointment and injured himself and was on indefinite medical leave and had not yet transcribed the note from my appointment. I have a lot
0: of reactions that I just can't put any of them into a single sentence.
2: In hindsight, it's so hilarious because that is the most British middle-class bullshit I've ever heard in my life. I'm sitting here like I cannot feed myself or go to work and you fell off your horse.
0: And like, you deserve great medical care, but also (laughs) this system needs to have like a little bit of resilience for shit like this happens. (laughs) In addition to how absurd it is as an activity.
2: And it was just like utterly impassive and so my mother argued with that clinic for like two or three days and they finally agreed the receptionist or nurse or admin finally agreed to type out the note that he'd written during my thing to send to the gp and exactly it's like that should happen automatically when it breaks down that easily like this is an issue there was always this attitude that we were being the unreasonable americans it was always like this slight like you're being overly emotional about this and like this (laughs) stiff upper lip yeah i feel so much for other chronically ill people there because the stiff upper lip thing is real
0: yeah
2: <laughs> it is real and it is not good when you're chronically ill yeah and then i was able to access the private system it was not easy my parents went into a lot of debt for that but that was a nice sleep clinic and they diagnosed me finally correctly with narcolepsy and what are the diagnostic criteria for narcolepsy you do an overnight sleep test and basically the overnight sleep test is to rule out any other issues with your sleep like apnea or restless leg that could be disrupting your sleep and therefore causing you to be tired during the day. Yeah. And they also do just look at your sleep architecture to see if there's any indicative abnormalities. I had like higher than normal sleep efficiency obviously. I had an oddly elevated level of n3 which is deep sleep which no one has ever been able to explain or seem particularly interested in but that i remain interested in why that was yeah i suspect it was because so elevated n3 sleep usually happens in what's called recovery sleep so if a normal person has been sleep deprived their recovery sleep after that will have the same kind of percentage of n3 that i had so essentially that tells me that my body was functioning as though it was sleep deprived, but no one's ever really talked about that in literature on narcolepsy. And then they do a daytime series of nap tests where there are a few different types of nap tests. So okay, the diagnostic one is multiple sleep latency tests. What happens is they leave the lights on it. They only dim them very slightly and they basically just have you rest back on the bed and they're like, try to stay awake for as long as you can, but like, don't pinch yourself, don't move, just lie yeah. there, but like, don't actively try to fall asleep. Keep your brain on. Exactly. And- they see how quickly you fall asleep. So you get up to five trials throughout the day, spaced at even intervals. And if you fall asleep within 20 minutes, within at least three of them, that's considered the positive MSLT. Okay. So then you've definitely
0: got something wrong. Okay, it is not expected for you to fall asleep that fast under those conditions.
2: Exactly, anything less than sort of falling asleep within 20 minutes is considered pathological if you do that routinely. And then they also check what stage of sleep you hit. And that's what distinguishes between idiopathic hypersomnia and narcolepsy. So narcolepsy is characterized by hitting REM very quickly, rapid eye movement, sleep. And so if you, I think it's within 10 minutes, if you also on at least three of the tests hit REM within 10 minutes, possibly 15, then that's considered positive for narcolepsy. If not, it's idiopathic hypersomnia. I started sleeping within an average of 30 seconds, <laughs> and I hit REM within an average of a minute. Yeah, that's fast. So that was narcolepsy, yep.
0: <laughs> you were like, okay, yeah. Yeah. So did you know very much about narcolepsy at that point? Because you'd been in IH groups. Was there like kind of some cross discussion or misdiagnosis discussion? How much awareness did you have at that time?
2: I had a decent amount of awareness, and it was exactly that. I had joined a narcolepsy group just because... There is a lot of crosstalk too, between issues in accessing care. Narcolepsy is marginally easier to access care for just because there are a couple of on-label treatments. Whereas for IH, there is absolutely nothing. Yeah. But in terms of like the average sleep specialist, knowing they know next to nothing about either. Like the average sleep specialist, they're an obstructive apnea specialist because they also don't know anything about central apnea. <laughs> yeah. They're,
0: yeah. <laughs> they're optimized for like identifying and treating one problem, which is a systemic thing.
2: And notably, the common and also mechanical problem. We're back to the mechanical. We are good at treating mechanical issues.
0: I want to also just flag this with a fun fact that I know from another interview, so people might know this from having listening, but somebody who I interviewed, Randy, who has EDS, who did have apnea, also she couldn't wear the CPAP machine because of her skin. So the CPAP wouldn't keep a seal around oh, her EDS so she was like trying to use a CPAP, and it, I forget now the details, it's in the interview, but it was like, maybe at the beginning, she'd be like, oh, this is great, and like by the end of the night, it would just not be on oh, it, like it God. wouldn't stay. Yeah. And she ended up having, I had never heard of the surgery, but they like put a little tube into your airway so it can't be obstructed, and she was like, for me, That worked, but like, it shouldn't be this hard, even when it is apnea, because EDS. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's the thing. Like, even when you've got the
2: common thing, unless it's the textbook version of the common thing, it's, Yeah. yeah. So I did know, and it parallels to a lot of like, what we've seen and talked about with hypermobility, because one of the distinguishing things- with narcolepsy is also what's called cataplexy. Mm-hmm. So there's narcolepsy with cataplexy and narcolepsy without cataplexy. And so cataplexy is sudden episodes of muscle weakness. Okay. And the thing is that in all of the literature that's described as like you collapse and it's usually in response to strong emotion. Mm-hmm. So it can look like a seizure often and it can be really dangerous because you can hit your head very badly. And, and that's the textbook version of, of cataplexy. So I didn't think I had cataplexy i do have cataplexy it turns out that the whole thing where i would like accidentally dump my like plate of salad or my coffee all over my chest or like i couldn't keep my head up or i couldn't keep my eyes focused yeah that's cataplexy but it's only ever described as the full drop Mm -hmm. so the the guy that i saw at the private clinic in london is one of the foremost sort of experts on narcolepsy in the uk and he immediately recognized that as cataplexy he's like no you have textbook narcolepsy with cataplexy and i actually remember too like I started laughing when he told me that. And he was like, why are you so happy about this? I'm like, I have something that's physical and like named. Yeah, I remember I was just like laughing with relief. It was so weird. It finally felt like having a bit of an answer, but I was still, he prescribed me Modafinil again. Doctors are way too positive about Modafinil. How
0: is it supposed to and or thought to work? <laughs>
2: It got a lot of hype, like around 10 years ago, I guess, because they came out with a study that found it was really effective at improving wakefulness. And I remember the big thing that they hyped it about was that it has minimal to no side effects. That may be true for healthy people who take it for like no tropic reasons, like, you know, the the mental capacity improvements. It may have no side effects for them. It made me hypomanic, (laughs) It made my tachycardia worse. It made my mast cell symptoms worse. It made my thermodysregulation worse. It made me have muscle spasms and horrible muscle cramps to the point that I couldn't unbend my leg for three days and I Mm. had to use a crutch because I literally just couldn't unbend my leg. They don't know exactly how it works. They really love to emphasize that it is not a stimulant. It's a wakefulness promoting agent. (laughs) They don't know exactly how it works. And at least one of the pathways by which they think it works Is the same way that stimulants work. So it's all a lot of
0: yeah rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a lot of intentionally misleading technical language.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's thought to work sort of through dopaminergic pathways. It's also thought to have some serotonergic action, which, in hindsight, I realize is probably why I was having so many side effects because a I was also on Prozac at the time because. Shockingly, I was dealing with a little bit of depression by then. Um, But also, I also do not tolerate serotonergic medications well at all Mm -hmm. because, which I did not know at the time, my mast cell disorder, one of the things mast cells release is serotonin. And once I learned that, it explained why I've always had symptoms of mild serotonin syndrome whenever I've gone on a serotonergic med. Yeah. So I was basically experiencing like mild to moderate serotonin syndrome on modafinil for months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And with no context for all of these changes, right? And like the
2: psych side effects were scary. My mom was like, your personality and your whole affect changed on a dime when it kicked in. It was
0: wild. (laughs) Yeah. It's so hard in general, like med side effects. (laughs) I mean, this episode will come out later than right now. So the discussion might have moved on. But at this exact moment when we were recording in early December, COVID vaccines are like a hot topic. And so I feel like this exact thing that you're talking about, about like, yeah, this drug is like really good for a lot of people. And I had every single system impacted. And it's like, oh, right, we don't have good side effects data on anything. I feel so deeply nervous about the COVID, and va- I'm
2: not even talking about it on Twitter because I do not want to deal with what my mentions will look like if yeah. I do, but I don't know if you know about this, but one of the H1N1 vaccines in 2009 is thought to have caused narcolepsy in a lot of people. Hmm. I don't think it did in me, in hindsight. I thought for a while it might have because my symptoms started getting a lot worse. It's all complicated too because my mast cell symptoms started getting so much worse. I did get swine flu. I also got the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Really lucky. I literally was probably pre-symptomatic when I got the vaccine and then about two days later I came out with full blood swine flu. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was in the months after that that my mast cell symptoms started getting unignorably bad. And it was over the following five to six years that it
0: just progressively got worse and worse and worse. We jumped because of me talking about vaccines. <laughs> time-wise did much happen between like, aha, it is narcolepsy. And then like, I'm living my sort of regular life. And then like, now I have swine flu. So I actually, the narcolepsy, I found out well after the swine flu. Oh yeah, you were talking about it for that reason. Yeah. The swine flu was in the first semester of my last year in undergrad. Okay, so yeah. And then you took a year off for your catching up. P.S. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yes. You did say that, but I did not timeline it properly.
2: Yeah. So this is the thing too. For several years there, the sleep just overwhelmed everything else. I didn't even notice the chronic pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just in the background so anyways I got swine flu and it made my illness so much worse so that has been a thing that I've been very aware of through this whole COVID thing yeah but there's also the fact that so many people and, and this it predominantly happened in the UK so it was a discourse that I was seeing a lot of while I was in the UK there are quite a few people who are thought to have gotten narcolepsy as a result of this one swine flu vaccine from this one manufacturer and so like On the one hand, I'm thinking about COVID, like, I really don't need my baseline to get any worse. The prospect of it triggering ME-CFS or mast cell activation syndrome in people is huge. And then I'm also like, I can't feel entirely okay with this vaccine. I'm going to get eventually, I'm probably going to wait a few months until, again, the whisper networks of chronically ill people. Because I've had so many experiences where I've had terrifying side effects that I was told there was no way were side effects that I was
0: experiencing. Yeah. And to be super clear, because I know that you know this, but like this isn't about like vaccine conspiracy. This is literally, like the, the easiest example that I can give for context for anyone listening who isn't in this conversation is that like the flu vaccine has not has egg in It's technical language, technical language, egg is involved. <laughs> and so they make an egg-free flu vaccine because egg is such a common allergen. But egg is a common trigger or like one of the proteins in eggs or whatever it is. And so a lot of people who don't know that they have a mast cell problem or who have like are having an unidentified mast cell flare because of a viral infection may have really serious or like longer or unexpected mast cell side effects that aren't being labeled that way by the patient, that aren't being labeled that way by the doctor, that aren't being labeled that way by the pharmaceutical company because it's just not... Seeing that it's not well understood enough is inaccurate. But it's not distributed well enough, yeah. would be a more accurate way to say it. And so it's like, there's so many conversations about the vaccine having, on. And there's one like, they're not telling us about the side effects. They're lying. They've done it too fast. And we're like, oh, no, no. I believe that the process that they do has been done yeah. properly. However, what you don't know is that we then have to see what our community experience is because they're not targeting tests for us. They're just not.
2: Exactly. And this is also the thing people talk about evidence based
0: medicine and the the
2: whole thing with evidence based medicine is it has the hierarchy of quality of evidence and the most high quality evidence is the large scale, double blind randomized control trial. People say the plural of anecdote is not data, which is, first of all, a misquote and I can get pedantic, I can get so (laughs) pedantic about that, but they forget. There's also a thing called the ecological fallacy, which is that large-scale statistics are never capable of predicting an individual outcome. That's literally not what they're meant for. They're meant for population-level trends. And I don't know how so many scientists like completely ignore this. So what happens, too, is when you're experiencing a side effect of something and you've got a relatively rare or poorly understood or poorly recognized condition, and you're maybe one of the only patients that your particular doctor sees with that condition. You go in and you say, I'm experiencing this side effect. And they say, well, I've never had anyone else tell me about that and it's not anywhere in the literature. So they ignore it. They never send it to the manufacturer. They never write it up in a journal. And so it's never anywhere else. And so then so the next person goes to their clinician who also only has like maybe three or four other patients. And they're like, well, I've never heard of that happening before. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you get into the Facebook group with all the people with your condition. You see like 20 to 30% of the people in the group are being like, hey, anyone else experienced this? Yeah. And like by the standards of what's considered a common side effect within that subgroup of patients, it is a very common side effect. But because those patients are so uncommon within each of their clinicians practices, they never get funneled into the literature. Yeah.
0: And with stuff like vaccines, I know in the US there are like Numbers that you can call to report side effects, to report adverse events, which is great. But it also, I think, frankly, falls into this same hole, which is that if you're someone who's had weird reactions to every single thing in your life, and you've been told your entire life that you should ignore those yeah. weird reactions, you're not going to be like, this is the one that I should report because they're going to take me seriously this time. You're going to be yep. like why am I so cursed and then move on with your life
2: (laughs) we're jumping all over the place but this is also the thing that I observed when I was in those initial Facebook groups Mm -hmm. they're so individualized and this was what ultimately led me to sort of moving towards the dispelled community once I sort of found about it on Twitter was that everyone was asking like why am I so cursed why can I not find a doctor to take me seriously and I was like this is not a you problem this is a systemic problem
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, it's weird when a couple of people are cursed. It's very weird when there are now thousands of people in my yeah. orbit who are cursed. This isn't a curse anymore. <laughs> yeah, this is still all over the place. And it applies to a lot of things, but it definitely applies to chronic illness. As soon as you start talking about it, and then you talk to a couple people, and you're like, oh, anecdotally, I'm starting to realize that some of these experiences are really typical. And so you start talking about your typical experiences, and then you find like that ring keeps expanding of people who are yeah. like, oh, is that? I have that. That's typical for you. And then they see the rest of the ring and they're like, oh, shit. Social media is doing this in so many places for so many experiences. And it's incredible and also very sad. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it's part of
2: the erasure that happens, too, because the whole thing is that, you know, you spend your entire life being told, I, this is weird. I've never heard of this before. This is only you. And so, of course, you learn to think about it in terms of, like, why am I so cursed? These individual terms. So it's a complete shift in perspective when you start realizing, actually, no, it is very much
0: not just me. Yeah, very much. (laughs) Okay, so that was an important current event conversation slash also (laughs) historical review. So anyway, (laughs) you're having a ton of side effects to this drug for narcolepsy. You're in the UK. Yeah, and so... By this point we were coming
2: up on the end of my contract in the uk and i basically managed to push through like i got the sort of re-diagnosis in january i was able to get the modafinil and it was awful side effects but it kept me conscious for like enough hours a day i could go to work push through honestly take some codeine or some ativan at night so that i could sleep because i could not sleep when i took modafinil. yeah <laughs> i think eventually i got prescribed Imovane. Which was really nice. It was useful. But yeah, like really not a healthy dynamic that was getting set up there. But I was able to sort of just like push through and like barely function till the end of my contract. And it was actually really funny because around the end of my time there, I met someone who's still one of my best friends and he was like coming over to watch a movie. And I remember we were sitting on the sofa and. I was like shifting a ton. And I remember being super embarrassed by how much it must be disturbing him because I like broke up with my ex shortly after undergrad. And from that point, I'd lived on my own. I was very on my own again. And I remember I was like sitting on the couch. I was like, oh my God, I must be disturbing him so much with how I'm shifting. And it was at that point that I realized I was in chronic pain. I suddenly sort of had this click I was like, it probably shouldn't feel like burning when I sit in the same spot for like 10 minutes and where my hips pressed against the edge of the couch. Yeah. And this was also through the patient groups, because by that point, I also knew some people with fibromyalgia who talked about allodynia, that burning feeling on the skin. And it was like, I was sitting there and I was shifting and feeling embarrassed. And I was like, wait a minute. At that point I was like, oh, I'm in chronic pain. From there, it's like the floodgates opened and I was realizing I'd been so focused on the very scary cognitive things where I was like substituting words or like yeah. walking out into traffic because of sleep deprivation. And I'd sort of wondered, I thought like maybe I've got like a pituitary tumor because I, I was noticing the temperature regulation stuff, which also the modafinil, because it's a stimulant made so much worse. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have to throw my sheets in the wash because they were disgusting. Like it was gross. Yeah. But then like the chronic pain piece started and I was like, oh... <laughs> there's like a whole other thing here it has like
0: sub basements
2: and I sort of started coming back and I was like oh shit the stuff with my knees when I was a kid oh my god and this was all just around the few months when I had finished up my contract I very obviously did not get my contract renewed because I didn't get any of the work I was supposed to do done and like I couldn't get any other jobs because I had no publication record I was very undesirable to play yeah. at that point let's face it I'm still really I could not get a corporate yeah, job to like- save my life I cannot imagine. So yeah, I had to move back home with my parents in rural Ontario. That was a whole thing because my relationship with my parents is a fraught one. And I also like, I had an awful time growing up where I did. I was the queer neurodivergent kid in a very racist, very homophobic small town in Ontario. So I just like, I was super depressed with the prospect of having to go home. It was like awful. And my narcolepsy was still not well managed. I was still sleeping a ton. This is the thing too, Modafina would sort of work for me for like about a month and then it would just Mm -hmm. stop and make me paradoxically more sleepy, which in hindsight, again, it was triggering my mast cells. It was making my mast cells worse. And that makes
0: you tired. I was getting like
2: a rebound reaction from it. So I got home and my focus became trying to get some answers, trying to get some alternative treatments for the narcolepsy and trying to figure out what all the other stuff was. And I did not have anyone else in that town other than my parents it was like 800 meters to the nearest bus stop and also i could get to the library but there was no bus route that would actually take me home so like i literally could not go anywhere unless my parents took me because also by that point i'd lost my license because of the perplexi so like i literally could not leave my parents house unless they took me and i mean they were willing to but also like you're limited by when they're available and also by when you're conscious and that also does not feel amazing as like a 28 year old to be chaperoned everywhere by yeah. your parents. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to <laughs> it. So, yeah. So by that point, I was on Twitter for like, just casual professional reasons. And I can't even remember how I found the disabled community. But I remember one of the first things I found was Crypt the Vote because this was 2016. And so I just started participating in the chats. And like, suddenly I found a community that seemed to get some of the stuff I mm-hmm. was dealing with. It was a total lifeline because that was... For three years, that was how I socialized. It's still how I socialize with people, let's face it.
0: You're like, who am I kidding?
2: But for three years, it was like, <laughs> I I had nothing else going on in my life. It was video yeah. games and Twitter. And yeah, I started seeing some of these other conversations. And I was just sort of writing some blog posts, A, just to have something to do, B, in the hopes of maybe getting some freelance writing jobs eventually, and having something vaguely productive in my life. And then there was a doctor on twitter who is based actually in the uk who also has Ehlers-Danlos and Mast Cell Activation Syndrome and I remember she messaged me and was like I think you need to look into these things (laughs) it was really funny I'd had someone suggest Ehlers-Danlos to me before and as so many of us have done I was like I'm not hypermobile I'm really stiff and I don't bend at all yeah so I just sort of like dismissed it out of hand. I was like, no, no, no. I've heard of that before, but like, I definitely don't and have I would it. know.
0: I would definitely <laughs> yeah. know if I was hypermobile because I live in this body.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, I definitely like, my doctors criticize me for not being flexible enough. I'm definitely not hypermobile. But what was interesting was actually this doctor who reached out to me, she mentioned the mast cell. And that was sort of the thing that made it click because we didn't even mention this, but I'd have really intense gut issues for a very long time to the point where... In undergrad, I was, like, terrified to eat anywhere that wasn't my apartment because I knew I was going to have to run to the toilet, like, 10 minutes later. And it was like, this is also just on the I would, like, start to feel faint because my mm-hmm. stomach hurt so much. And I was going, like, four or five times a day. Like, it was just dramatically bad. Yeah. Interfering, right? Yeah. And it's like, honestly, that's been one of the most distressing sort of symptoms I've dealt with because it's mortifying. A, if you're out with friends, especially in your 20s, being like, hey, I've just got to like go to the washroom and then you disappear for 20 minutes and everyone knows what you're
0: doing. Yeah, and everyone's like weird about it at that age, I feel like too. And maybe at any age, depending on their relationship to disability, I guess. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Honestly, one of the things I love the most with disability is how we can just like talk about shit, literal shit, and people are just like, okay,
0: it's yeah. just like part of life. It's freeing. <laughs> There are a lot of bodily fluids that we just have to talk about more, as it turns out.
2: I remember, like, I had the bathrooms on campus memorized, like, which were the ones that had the floor-to-ceiling doors, because I dealt with harassment. Like, people would come in and start being like, oh my god, why does it smell so bad in here? And it's, like, mortifying sitting there, like, being
0: like, oh my god. You're like, this wasn't an intentional thing where I'm, like, taking secret joy from your discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. I really,
2: I really wish this were not happening right now. (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, the bathrooms in the Trinity College Library have heavy wood floor to ceiling doors. That is the best bathroom. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's go study there. But yeah, so she sort of mentioned that and like that sort of made things click. And so this was the start of my experimentation. I talked to my family doctor and she was like reticent to refer me for diagnosis. She's like, well, there's not, just take some antihistamines. and. I was frustrated with the dismissiveness, but I'm also grateful in hindsight, because the fact that I started taking antihistamines and was responsive to them Mm -hmm. were what helped me to get a clinical diagnosis. Because this is the other thing, when I finally got in to see the allergist, he was like, so do you get hives? I was like, well, no, not really. And that's (sighs) the symptoms that he was most interested in were not the symptoms that were most disruptive to my life. And this is what I've been thinking about so much lately, which is how do symptoms change over the course of a disease that's been undiagnosed and untreated for literally 25 years, your body is going to adapt and respond, and your symptom profile is going to change. And there's no way to accommodate that within clinical diagnostic criteria. Also, somehow, I've never had like a positive test result for anything yeah. meaningful. Yeah, I don't entirely trust that because I've also found out later that some of the tests that apparently came back normal did not. So I would love to see my blood panel results for everything at some point. But anyway, essentially, I did not have any positive tests and I didn't have some of the most stereotypical things like hives but based on the respiratory stuff I'd had the gastro stuff I'd had and the fact that I was starting to respond to the antihistamines I was taking I got a clinical diagnosis and that meant so much because like six months before that this is also the thing when People are like, why do you care about getting a diagnosis so much? Six months before that, I'd had an allergic asthma attack because the air conditioner was broken in my parents' car. And so I was essentially getting like blasted in the face with aerosolized pollen for three hours while we drove to another (laughs) doctor's appointment. And so I started having this very slow, it felt like when you got pneumonia, like that burning on fire feeling in your chest. And it progressed over the course of about five days when I finally called Telehealth Ontario. And they were like, you should probably go to the ER. They called me an ambulance and I tried explaining to the paramedics that we suspected mast cell disorder, but I was not officially diagnosed yet. And they decided instead that I'd overdosed on the ants that I was at that point taking for my narcolepsy, which is a substituted amphetamine. It's a slow acting amphetamine. I remember they got there and like, I came out to meet them because the thing is, my parents' house is weird. We have a front door, but it was blocked off because they were using that room for storage. So I had to come out around the garage. So I was just watching for them they came out. I guess they thought that was weird, but I was like, you're not going to be able to get in, you know. Yeah. I guess that was suspicious for them. So they started interrogating me about my symptoms and it's like 30 degrees out. I have temperature dysregulation. Which is hot
0: if you're in America. Sorry, yes, yeah, it's not pleasant. Yeah.
2: And you know, I have issues with standing. At this point, POTS wasn't
0: diagnosed yet. So were you only looking at, you were only looking at mast cell to begin with also? This was your primary.
2: And Ehlers-Danlos, I'd, I'd asked for a referral to the EDS clinic. I was sort of wondering about POTS, but it was sort of like on the sidebar. Yeah. That was a thing that no one was even willing to refer me, so I was like, I'm, I'm gonna deal with that once I get to the EDS clinic, and hopefully yeah. they'll refer me. Okay,
0: so yeah, so you're like mast EDS, other shit later. Yeah,
2: and I sort of was like generally aware that I struggled with upright posture, but that was on the back burner.
0: I prefer to be horizontal all the time. <laughs> I was not aware it was medical. I'm starting to think it might be. <laughs>
2: And so like I'm in tripod pose. I have my legs spread, my hands on my knees and they're like interrogating me and I'm like panting and they're like, you seem a little agitated. And I'm like, (laughs) yes.
0: This is a very distressing experience.
2: (laughs) Thank you for noticing. (laughs) I was like, well, I'm struggling to breathe and it's made worse by both the heat and by standing. And I tend to get kind of mouthy when... (laughs) distress yeah. like this is an autistic thing I get mouthy and articulate when I'm in distress and people do not recognize that for what it is they yeah. think I'm like just being an asshole yeah
0: like you must not be suffering that much if you have this much articulation
2: if, if you have you know the, the capability to be that sarcastic you can't po- I'm like no no like being sarcastic is what happens when things are an emergency for me I get really sarcastic when I'm struggling uh, yeah This is distress. So yeah, they finally like loaded me into the truck. And I like, because I'm a chronic patient, I brought my little pouch of meds with me and I gave them to them and they pull out the the Vivans, and they're like, why do you have this? And I was like, for narcolepsy. And they were like, are you sure you didn't take a little too much of that? And I was like, actually, no, I haven't taken it for three days because it tends to make my tachycardia worse. And I didn't think I needed that on top of this. Yeah. So honestly, I've not actually taken it for three days. And they're like, are you sure about that? And I was like, uh-huh. And they're like, well, see, I find that a little hard to believe because I don't know why they would prescribe you something like that for narcolepsy. Because you see, the thing is, this kind of drug tends to keep you more awake. And again, because I get real sarcastic when I'm upset, I was like, right, that would be the problem that I have as a narcoleptic.
0: Yeah. But it's just like, you're like, what are you trying to say? And you know, you're like, you're saying you don't believe me. I know what you're saying, which is also why I'm fucking agitated right now.
2: And also, like, how do you have this fundamental misunderstanding of what narcolepsy is? Like, (laughs) literally, the problem is I can't stay conscious. That would be why they gave me a med to keep me awake. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I was explaining that, like, I also I told them to count the pills and the bottle they didn't it was great they literally took me to the hospital they made me pee in a cup and then they left me without ever checking my breast sounds which was just amazing my parents finally got there and I was like you have to drive me to a different hospital (laughs) Um, where it turned out yes I was having a very bad asthma attack and they like gave me so many doses of salbutamol that I lost count and some steroids and then I was better. The point of that whole detour was because I had a suspected diagnosis and not a real one that contributed to them thinking that I'd overdosed on, in their words, my meth-like medication rather than like I was having an allergic asthma attack that was worsened by the mast cell condition. So anyway, so I finally got the mast cell diagnosis and this was sort of what started putting the the pieces together for me because while I was in the UK, I remembered that some of the patients had been talking about this drug called Waykix or patolacind, which was a type of histamine receptor blocker (laughs) and it's an H3 blocker, which is a very specific type of histamine receptor and actually acts in opposition to the ones we more normally think of the ones that Benadryl blocks, which is the H1 receptor. They form a negative feedback loop. And so essentially Neurons in your hypothalamus release histamine throughout the day. They bind to the H1 receptors, which causes waking up symptoms (laughs) in your brain. And then throughout the day, the amount of histamine that's being released and and filling the intracellular space builds up. And so some of it starts to attach to the H3 receptors on the upstream neurons. And the H3 receptors tell those neurons to stop producing histamine as much. So then the histamine levels gradually go down over time start detaching from the H1 receptors and the wakefulness signals stop and you go to sleep for the night. And that's part of how you have a 24 hour sleep wake cycle. Histamine builds up, attaches to the H1, you're awake, builds up, attaches to the H3, stop producing histamine, dissipates, you're asleep. And so what had happened with this group of narcolepsy patients was they'd found that some of them had constitutively less histamine in their brains. And so they blocked the H3 receptor and that encouraged the neurons to keep spewing out more histamine. It turned off the off signal,
0: essentially. Yeah. H3 blockers prevent the H3 receptors from realizing that it is time to stop. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It deactivates the off switch. So you keep producing
2: histamine and then that histamine keeps attaching to the pro awake receptors. And that seems completely the opposite of what you'd expect in someone with mast cell. But I was like, this is too much to be a coincidence, right? There has to be a connection here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If there's a relationship, this feels relevant.
2: The fact that histamine plays a role, like there's got to be something going on. And so I just started researching how these receptors work. Like I didn't know this was exactly how they worked at the time. This was like months of research. (laughs) Yeah. And finally I was like, okay, but like maybe what's happening is there are also mast cells in the brain. Maybe the issue here is that when these mast cells are spewing out histamine erratically, it's just disrupting the sleep-wake cycle entirely. It made sense, too, because I had no sleep cycle to speak of. Like I was also, towards that time, starting to wonder, do I have non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder? Because it wasn't just that I was sleeping a ton. And with the vivance, which is a much slower, gentler stimulant, I was doing better. I was able to sleep for like maybe 13 hours a day and not also take an extra three hour nap. Yeah. And so it was like better, but it was still like, I couldn't go to sleep and wake up at the same time every day. So there was still something weird. And I was like, so maybe what's happening here is that the histamine that's getting erratically dumped out by my mast cells in my brain has just completely destroyed my sleep-wake cycle. And then as a result, Even when I was getting sleep, I wasn't getting quality sleep. And so over time, over the years, it set up this dynamic of utter sleep deprivation in my brain too, which was then the narcolepsy symptoms. I was like, okay, I need to artificially reestablish this histamine cycling. And around that time I asked my allergist, I was like, hey, is this possible? And I I told him about and stuff. And he just sort of was like, I've never heard of histamine being involved in the sleep-wake cycle. And I was like, cool. Okay, dude, my research skills are not the ones that I've just lost confidence in here, but okay.
0: Yeah. So... Yeah. Like what you think you're telling me and what you have in fact told me are not the same thing at all.
2: Yeah. And like, it was right around that time i started taking Benadryl because that was like the easier thing to get. And so the Benadryl blocks the pro-awake histamine receptor.
0: As I hold up the Benadryl immediately <laughs> beside me, yes.
2: It notoriously makes you sleepy, right? And that's because when histamine binds the h1 receptor makes you awake so it blocks that h1 receptor so i started taking it at night to restore the nighttime half of that cycle and this is the other thing too so it works the same way this is me you now info dumping about brains. No, I want it. I'm so into <laughs> it. So as opposed to other antihistamines like cetirizine or loratadine, so Allegra, Claritin, Reactin, those are the newer generation antihistamines, and they're designed so that they are worse at crossing the blood-brain barrier. The whole thing with the first generation H1 blockers is that they cross the blood-brain barrier really easily, which is why they make you sleepy, because they can then bind to the H1 receptors in your brain, gotcha. and that's exactly why they develop these newer ones, making them specifically worse at crossing with blood and barrier so that you can get the h1 blocking within your body without having it happening in your brain which is great if that's what you need but also sometimes you need it happening in your brain yeah. <laughs> so i started taking benadryl at night and waykicks kicks at that point had been approved in the uk and the eu it had not been approved in the us they're now in trials in the us which is amazing news for so many people it is probably not going to get approved in canada anytime in the next 10 to 15 years because This is another thing about Canadian healthcare. Our low drug prices are very good for getting access to common first and second line drugs. Awesome. Very good. Drug companies suck. They also have no impetus to test new drugs in our country. (laughs) So we do not have nearly as many drugs as you
0: all do. I would like to add, people get mad at me when I say this because it offends people, but the Canadian healthcare system relies so heavily on the American healthcare system. Oh, yes. Obviously, it's so much more complicated than this. But one reason that Canada can get away with just like never improving, there's a ceiling on the care that you can get in Canada, and it is much higher than the ceiling that the NHS has, which is like one of the things, right? Because in the UK, you hit that ceiling pretty soon, and then you're like, cool, do I wait forever or do I go private, which is a problem. In Canada, you hit the ceiling, which is higher. And a few people are like, cool, do I go to the States? It's not as many people because it's significantly more expensive. It is not designed to serve that purpose. But like a not insignificant amount of chronically ill people who need LDN, who need Lyme treatment, who need EDS treatment, who need endometriosis treatment, go to the States. And they don't talk about it that much because they get yelled at. Yep. This is a
2: real thing. So I love that you brought this up because this is one thing I wanted to mention about the the UK too. There was an attitude I ran into too, which was, well, if you don't like how long the wait times are, go private. And it's like, okay, but I mean, like, not everyone can do that. On the one hand, there's this risk with supplementary private systems that that's sort of the dismissive attitude you'll get Be like, well, if you don't like waiting, then... Mm -hmm you have an option. And then meanwhile, here in Canada, when I was like, I was for a time concerned that possibly I had vascular EDS because of the severity of my bleeding issues. Mm -hmm. And because of a couple other medical incidents I'd had that involved scary bleeding episodes. And I was asking about genetic counseling. And I was like, is there an option to go private? Like, maybe I could do a GoFundMe or whatever. And they sort of smugly were like, we're very proud of having an entirely public system. I'm like, I mean, great, good for you. I still would love to know if I can get this care anywhere. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's so many good things about the, the way the Canadian system operates, like yeah. sincerely, extremely sincerely. Yeah. But the fact that there is just not a pathway for things that don't, like, there's not a like direction to point people in. It's like, hey, cool, yeah. even if the way, I know this is changing with EDS, but it's not like, oh, great, we do have a pathway for people who are difficult to diagnose complex cases, whatever, whatever, it's just shitty. They're like, oh, no, we don't have that pathway. Thank you for coming.
2: I would argue that it's not even changing with EDS, because the thing is, we have the clinic here now. And this is my personal conspiracy theory. I think the clinic is not. I've heard other people articulate it. <laughs> I think the clinic exists so that when those people who can't afford to go to the states go to the states and go to the news about having had to go to the states, they can say, well, that was your choice. We have a clinic here because the number of people who I know who have actually gotten meaningful care from there is less than a handful. Mm -hmm. And I know so many more people who have had experiences that were like, they sent me into a depressive episode with how invalidating they were. They didn't want to refer me to POTS diagnosis because they said, again, well, there's nothing you can do for that other than drink water anyway. And I was like, okay, but again, I need the diagnosis. And... So like I had to fight really hard for them to even refer me to the POTS diagnosis. I initially asked them to refer me to the allergist for mast cell diagnosis. They flat out refused. And finally, I went to my family doctor. She finally agreed that time.
0: It's obstructionist.
2: Yeah. They offered me one session of physiotherapy. I declined because I was in such a bad headspace because of that experience. I've since heard that that physiotherapist has injured several people. So I'm really glad I didn't go. And they offered me an appointment where we'd have to pay out of pocket to get insoles made for my shoes. That was the extent of what I got from that clinic. Yeah, that's not great. Where is it? It's uh, Toronto General. Okay,
0: it's in Toronto.
2: They they have the accompanying clinic at SickKids, which I have heard not much better things about. So, yeah. It exists in name, but I think in large part it actually exists just to be like, if you go to the States, we can yeah. say that was your choice now. Yeah, I think everyone thinks the grass is greener, and having experienced two out of the three of these systems, and you having experienced two out of the three, they're all terrible in slightly different ways. Yeah. You can't get good care under any of them. No. If you're chronically ill and disabled, none of them exist to offer good care for people like us, and the ways in which they deny us care just changed very slightly in each.
0: <laughs> yeah, like it matters a lot that people go bankrupt seeking a diagnosis in the US and may not even get one. This isn't even what aboutism. It's just that like, that is like the sub-basement again. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I was able to
2: like have an ambulance called for me and like we had to pay $45 for it, as opposed to like, I've seen people on Twitter crowdfunding because a stranger called an ambulance for them and now they're out of pocket like a thousand dollars. That's a meaningful difference for sure. Yeah. But like, yeah. Then at the same time, I have people from the States be like, oh, have you tried this drug? I'm like, I can't, even if it's approved here, there's no pathway for me to ask for it from my doctors Mm -hmm. because it's third line and they're just simply not willing. You can only get first and second line drugs here unless you go through the five years to get to the specialist specialist within your field. Mm -hmm there's like no chance that you're gonna be able to get that third line drug. And like experimental and off-label, forget it. <laughs>
0: this was actually a really interesting thing. Cause one of my, aside from how it impoverishes people on an immense scale, which is definitely number one, my number two beef, with the United States healthcare system that doesn't get discussed enough is the administrative burden on patients is just enormous. So, like most patients, even most chronically ill patients, if you're not looking at this level of care, in Ontario at least, healthcare is practically frictionless. You have your card, you give it to them. I know yeah. it's not everybody. Yeah. <laughs> as a regular person, when you're seeking diagnosis, it's pretty frictionless. Yes, that's yeah. In the states, as a regular person seeking diagnosis, you are already putting just an incredible amount of cognitive overhead into like the very yeah basic administration of care. And that still blows my mind how much time it takes up. But then it's one of those yeah. things that in Ontario, for example, that escalates very, very quickly if you have complex needs. So yeah. if you need specialized drugs that not all doctors know how to make the case for, because it's not just a matter of prescribing, if you need funding for your drugs, because also drug care is confusing in Ontario. Drugs aren't covered, <laughs> it- but they're cheaper but really expensive <laughs> drugs are sometimes covered by trillium. Oh, I, this is a whole thing. We, Oh my God.
2: Yeah. But yes, I, I totally see what you mean there. And
0: you don't hit the friction until much higher up with OHIP. Exactly. Until
2: you need those. I'll talk about it in the same terms as drugs. First tier care, yeah. which is like your family doctor or whatever. And like second tier, which is like maybe the local specialist clinic. Yeah. Once you get to the third care, which is like the person who's at Sunnybrook in that one clinic who actually knows about narcolepsy or yeah. whatever. And that's the friction.
0: Yeah, it escalates very quickly.
2: Yeah, exactly. God, yeah, the drug thing. Get back to that. But yeah, (laughs) so the H3 blockers. So essentially, I was just reading and like, eventually, I found that there is a chemical called conicin, which is also an H3 antagonist, H3 inverse agonist. Marginal difference in case any biomedical scientists are listening and want to get you know retentive with me yeah they're about to like send you a message on twitter about it it's actually not an antagonist you're clearly just a quack (laughs) clearly self-diagnosing is not very effective
0: none of this language makes (laughs) any sense because of that one misuse of a single word (laughs) I love it.
2: Um, Anyway, so inverse Agonist, and it turns out that it exists in some plants, one of which is thankfully used in Ayurvedic medicine and therefore can be bought through Ayurvedic medicine websites. So I bought the syrup and that's now my daytime medication. And literally, so like I started taking the Benadryl and literally the next morning after I had that, I woke up after eight hours and I was like, holy fuck, this is doing something.
0: So just Benadryl first, like Benadryl before bed. Yeah. Sleep quality notably improved
2: yeah and i started it because i was like you know what it's worth a try and like it it took a few weeks to order the other one because it was coming from india Um, so i was like might as well try it see if anything happens and i woke up after eight hours and i was like what and I, i didn't feel great but i didn't feel more tired than i had when i went to sleep which was huge i'd literally never woken up feeling as tired or less tired yeah i would wake up feeling like you do after you've been on like a bender. Yeah waking up feeling hungover literally every day. So I woke up after eight hours, which I'd been sleeping 13 hours straight for several years at that point. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Benadryl. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And then about like a month later, the Kutaja, which is my Ayurvedic herb arrived. I started taking that in the day and I had energy. I still dealt with fatigue, but I was like awake. I could eat and I wouldn't immediately fall asleep after. I could sit in the car and not fall asleep. And it was incredible it was like mind-blowing and yeah i had a sleep cycle and i could predict when i was gonna it was just yeah magical it was like just unbelievable literally (laughs)
0: life-changing
2: yeah i was thinking about this too last week because i've also hacked my chair with some snow tires and gotten appropriate winter clothing because i can wear the clothing because it's not too heavy now that i have a chair And I was going outside in the snow, and I was like, this is, you know, those videos when you see babies, like, trying cochlear implants for the first time, and everyone's like, oh my god, this is so inspiring, except it's not, because what they're actually showing is, like, distress from sensory overload. But I'm like, this is the feeling that those people watching those videos think that they're experiencing. I'm like, this is, like, the most inspirational garbage that you could possibly imagine. And it's also funny cause I would tell my doctors about it and none of them ever really explicitly said it, but they would a focus in on, you know, it's dangerous to take supplements. Who's your naturopath or allude to the fact that, oh, maybe this was all just hypochondria in the first place. Yeah.
0: Like this is the placebo effect from Ayurvedic yeah. medicine. Yeah, so clearly this was all
2: psychosomatic to begin with.
0: <laughs> what really, really strikes me also from your comparison is like this moment of joy that you're describing is not a story about medicine coming to help you. It's a story about you finally like seeing past all of the crud that medicine has put in your way for your entire life. <laughs> yeah. Literally, you're in this moment like, I've been trying to fix this externally forever and it hasn't worked. And so I've done something else. It's inverted in every way (laughs) yeah this is
2: the thing too it wasn't even about fixing a problem in my body it was about learning to listen to my body and understand I love what you said last week about learning your body's vocabulary I'm like that's literally been it and now I feel like I'm working with my body rather than constantly fighting against it and it's a fundamental shift from what medicine tries to do even though in a lot of ways it seems like there's no difference I'm, I'm treating a thing I'm looking at the molecular interactions and trying to figure out what are the building blocks. But it's literally, I've been learning the language of my body and what each of these things means. If I'm flushing, I'm like, okay, like, what are the triggers that are happening? Maybe I need to rest today. I now feel like I'm working with it rather than fighting against it. And it still has limitations. It's still kind of like a screwy body. But like now I know the ways in which to not fight against that and not make it get worse, so.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This is where, like, where I'm at in my head of trying to untangle some medical model stuff too, so just get ready for some language. I feel like this is a place where cure discourse really becomes meaningless very, very quickly. You're like... OK, I want research and treatment options and better medicine because it is so clear to me how I have been hurt by the lack of those things in my life. Literally, this entire conversation is like, here are all of the times that doctors didn't know how to recognize the serious thing that was going on. So like, it is so clear this is an invisibility thing. When it's medically invisible and you become aware of that a couple of decades later, it is so clear in retrospect what the impact of that was. And also, I don't know, now looking back, it's like, oh, as I can read the patterns, which is kind of like what you're describing right now, like, oh, that was mast cell, oh, that was dysautonomia, you're like, suddenly, I'm a lot less invested in the idea of getting cured and a lot more invested in the idea of just like, stopping before things get that bad. But that was never an option before. It's not like, oh, before I was an asshole who wanted a cure. It was just like, (laughs) before I was miserable with no explanation and I wanted to not be. And now I have an explanation. And so my entire perspective on like what a good life looks like has evolved. But it's not because I was an asshole before. Yeah. I don't know. There's something in there that I am not quite at, but I feel like it's there. (laughs)
2: Honestly, this is one of the main things that... My business partner liz and i are trying to unpack in our own work because this is the thing it has underpinned so much of we're like totally pivoting now to the design (laughs) side of things but like it has underpinned so much of the the way we think about design too because this pure visible invisible dichotomy applies to design too when you think about the things that are designed for disability those are always things for medically visible disability and they're structured in a very particular way they're about overcoming and we're just invisible disabilities invisible it's just not there and I've been like I can't keep erasing myself in the work that we're doing mm-hmm. we need a model that accommodates that and this is a thing I've been trying to unpack for myself too with regard to cure because in a lot of ways functionally I would say my narcolepsy is cured functionally I am not narcoleptic anymore it is still absolutely a part of my identity but it's not a part of my day-to-day life and yeah. I would also never want it to be. I would never begrudge anyone with narcolepsy wanting a cure because like, this is the thing too. You know, Liz and I have talked about like the thing with cure too, is that it's so appealing to the abled gaze that it diverts all the money that could exist for accommodations and for research and for treatment, research and, and treatment that aren't cure oriented. Yeah. But at the same time, there is no accommodation that could have made living with the narcolepsy that I had. Maybe some people with narcolepsy find it more bearable for me there is no amount of accommodation that could have made that bearable Mm -hmm. I could not have survived much longer like I was contemplating not living any longer because it when I say I was living a half-life I feel that certain disabled people get really uncomfortable that it was a literal half-life I was sleeping upwards of 16 hours a day I was literally conscious less than half the time you all are yeah and when I was conscious my brain was functioning as though it had been sleep deprived for at least three days, which is literally how they torture people in Guantanamo. It was a perpetual state of torture. There was nothing about that existence that was bearable. Yeah. So like, there's no amount of accommodation. And, and I mean, even sort of setting aside how we're bad at accommodating things like time. One of my favorite design problems to pose to people is like, how do you design an accommodation for asynchronicity or for non-industrial time? And I love that as a design question, but even putting that aside, that would be great for people with non-24, you know, or delayed phase sleep
0: disorder, but... It assumes that you have a few... There's not good language for you because it's like (laughs) functionality language, which we already know is not really that helpful. And it's like, okay, cool, uh, let's accept that and then only use it personally. But if we use it personally, the relativism messes it up. But like,
2: you're just, you can't use your brain. Yeah, exactly. There is no level of accommodation that could make existing in that brain not awful and that's such a hard thing to talk about within disability spaces and so anyway this is like the model that we're developing which hopefully we're applying to some grants so that we can hopefully buy ourselves a few months to write because this is the other thing too like turns out we can't teach and consult and also write at the same time because we're disabled
0: who would have thought that would be overwhelming
2: (laughs) yeah we need to buy ourselves a little time so hopefully hopefully we can get some grants and actually finally write this paper or whatever it turns into be i don't know i, I don't necessarily want it to be a journal article because i want it to be for the community that line's a hard line to navigate
0: what is for the community and what is for the academy or whatever
2: exactly yeah and so i'm calling it the phenomenological model which sounds very much like it's going in the academy but i i like to so what we're saying is the medical and social model are named in deceptively simple ways and they're actually there's a lot of complexity. We're hoping that we get all the complexity out of the way in the name. (laughs) Yeah. problem solved. (laughs) But essentially, we need a model that captures both what's shared between these categories of disability and what is really genuinely distinct within them. And so where I'm at is that disability, I think, is the state of living within a body mind that society seeks to erase. But the thing is, there are very different ways in which it seeks to erase different disabled body minds. And so in some cases, It seeks to erase them by preventing their existence, and that's gene editing, prenatal screening, abortion. And that is very often people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. That's sort of where the majority of that is aimed at. Then you have the medically visible somatic disabilities, and they erase through overcoming and cure, right? So they, they try to cure you, and if they can't, they build you a standing wheelchair so that functionally you're not disabled anymore. Yeah. And then you have the medically invisible disabilities which they erase by telling you that you're not disabled at all yeah and you know it's not three neat categories there's yeah. overlap between them
0: obviously A ton of permeability
2: yeah yeah and like there are other disabilities that may fit more or less into other categories and there are probably other mechanisms that i haven't noticed yet but those are sort of the the three key ones that i've noticed and they give rise to incredibly different embodied experiences and relationships to I, disabled identity and so when you're someone who has experienced that refusal you want to know what is going on in your body in a material way there's something validating about knowing about the materiality and you relate to that materiality of disability in a way that I think is very different than if you're someone who has only ever had your body treated as something that needs to be fixed Mm -hmm. and yeah it's meaningful and it it has such an impact with regard to like policy and stuff too, like I keep going back and thinking about the 21st century Cures Act, which I think was in 2016 or 2017. And the the disabled advocacy community was for the most part very against that. And I remember I was so frustrated because one of the things that was doing was to try and sort of like lower the threshold for approval of drugs that are already being used as off-label treatments. Mm -hmm. And the medically visibly disabled advocates were saying this is dangerous, this is gonna lead to like really shoddy approvals and them coercively pushing drugs that have been understudied on people. And I'm like, or it means that people with idiopathic hypersomnia are finally gonna be able to get insurance coverage. And that was just nowhere within the conversation. And I'm honestly, I'm still mad about that.
0: <laughs> like One thing that also is like, that I know you're aware of, cause you've talked about it, but I just wanna like make it explicit is that not all conditions are primary. And that is not a part of a lot of conversations about healthcare and medicine. And and it's kind of what you just said about your narcolepsy is you're like mm-hmm. my narcolepsy is functionally cured, but like the kind of reality of it is that yeah. you're probably never not going to have a connective tissue disorder or a mast cell yeah. disorder, but all of a sudden by being diagnosed properly and like with access to some of the tools and treatments that can manage yeah. this You're still disabled, but all of a sudden, all of your, like, secondary conditions that had previously been labeled idiopathic are comprehensible and manageable and sometimes cured. And it's a huge thing in our community because, like, as we're seeing that there are more and more structural causes of ME, for example, how do we talk about this? If someone has EDS and they have ME and their ME was diagnosed first and their EDS isn't diagnosed until their ME has been cured, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And it's so often framed as like, they just want to get out of the disability community. They're able, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, a lot of people with medically invisible conditions, literally are like, I am so disabled. I have no interest in not being in this community. I'm like into this identity. And as you just said, I cannot live under these conditions anymore. And I think an important thing to add is that no amount of social support would make this situation livable. Here's the thing that I don't want to get into, but that is also relevant (laughs) around end of life, is that there are two problems if you are disabled. I mean, obviously, there are many more. But I'm trying to talk about one. There's like, you can't take care of yourself because you don't have the resources to do it because the government has eroded the safety net or did not create it or whatever it is. That is a societal problem. Yeah. Also, you could be optimally supported in every way and so sick that that does not impact. It maybe impacts your baseline stress levels if you're not impoverished and you're cognitively functional enough to care about that. Yeah, But you also might not be if your yeah. capacity to be awake Which is like, ME functions differently, blah, blah, blah. But like, MCAS creates a lot of these same things. That is a really important nuance. And I want to rip my hair out when I see people not acknowledge it or like not be aware of it. I think. One
2: time, I almost started a kitchen fire because I went to make tea. And then I forgot, within like two minutes... And I went back downstairs and then like an hour later I was like, fuck, why does the house smell like smoke? And I went upstairs and I'd literally like, my mom had one of those really nice enamel painted kettles from like Le Creuset or whatever. The water obviously had all burned off and I melted the fucking kettle to the stove. And it was like, "Hmm." it's funny in hindsight at the same time. I was like, I can't make myself a fucking cup of tea safely. Yeah, That's just so it's, Yeah, it's like dehumanizing and it's horrifying. Like you can't do anything safely on your own. It's like, again, like, you know, infantilizing disabled adults, but you feel like a toddler, like nothing. You can't
0: do anything for yourself and it's awful. And when it's in the like middle stage, so for so many people, right? There's like when you actually realize there's so much of a problem that you can no longer pretend to live in the world anymore. And then when you find out the name of that problem and that gap can be have a lot of different sizes, but like, in that time, you're like, nothing is working. I don't know what it is. And I don't have the tools to evaluate what's safe and what's not. Exactly. All the time when you're trying to have these conversations, people will be like, okay, but in an optimally supported environment, your kitchen would be accessible to you. And you're like, yeah. yes, I want that. And also, <laughs> I want to know what would make a kitchen safe for Yes. Because right? I don't know right now. So even <laughs> if I had five million dollars for the best kitchen reno in the world it would not be a more accessible kitchen yeah totally so I have a lot of feelings about that (laughs) yes same but yeah because it's like it can hit the first thing where people are like what you think we just don't need support then because you should just be well enough that you don't need it and you're like no no I think we should have support and I think we should have the tools to identify what kind of support we would benefit from
2: Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing like for me diagnosis was the start of finding that language. It yeah. was having a framework to understand. And also, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that I found that language through diagnosis did not in any way come from the clinic. Right. You brought it to them. They affirmed the things that I brought to them and put it on paper so that I could apply for benefits. And and also like gave me a slight sense of official validation that okay, I'm going down the right road here. Yeah. But once I had those diagnoses, those answers through my own research, through other chronically ill and disabled people, I was able to start being like, okay, well, this is why this is happening. And therefore these are the things that I can do to support
0: myself in them. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And and like you just said, okay, I do want to get back to our main track, but like you just said, (laughs) like when you ask people to brainstorm asynchronicity, it's so difficult and that's it. Like, because I feel like I've been very much in that this year because I've had like so many health yeah. conundrums, we'll <laughs> call them. And I'm like, okay, I have already accepted that I'm never going back to the 40 hours a week world and that's been fine. But I was like at a stasis of 10 hours a week and then I lost my 10 hours a week and it was like, okay, what tools do I have available to still participate in the world yeah. when I can't predict this? And that's yeah. difficult. Okay, but you must have also been wrestling that with that question. So, sleep cycle.
2: Yes, oh god, yeah. It literally felt magical and it, it was like the first time I sort of had a glimpse of like, okay, I'm gonna be able to like move out on my own eventually. I, I have a difficult relationship with my parents, let's put it that way, and I could not fathom the idea of being there for the rest of my life. And. So I was increasingly desperate to find some way to allow myself to move back, And this is, again, what we were talking about. I literally could not, like, even setting aside money and affordable housing, I physically could not live on my own because I could not make a freaking cup of tea without setting something on fire potentially. (laughs) difficult so like it was when I fixed my sleep cycle that I finally sort of started to have a glimmer of hope that like maybe I could have some kind of future Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not just like in a you know again in a like productive able gay sense but like literally just like I can continue to exist in a way that's tolerable this is great it was like I sort of like gave me confidence in the fact that okay I can do this I can continue finding ways to treat myself this is a valid way to go I'm not just completely grasping at straws here. And that was sort of like, that's been the next couple of years. Right around the time, I finally got my POTS diagnosis. And that is like the only thing where I've ever actually had a positive test result. It's not just been like clinical, like sure, okay, you have HSD or MCAS. And I I actually got that and that meant a lot because like finally I have a thing on paper. So then I was able to apply for disability benefits, which not nearly enough money, but I'd been getting $450 a month. So I got $400 to pay my parents for room and board. And then I got fifty dollars for everything else. <laughs> it's
0: like a dollar ten a day or something. Yeah, and,
2: and I mean, this is the thing too. This is going back to the complicated Ontario drugs thing. So, like, the main drugs that I take are antihistamines, which are available over the counter, and I could get them prescribed. I could get them prescribed and I get the Ontario drug benefit. So I get some of my drugs covered because I'm on ODSP now and I was on OW unemployment before. So technically I'm I have pharmacare here. But the thing is, most of my drugs are things that you can find off the shelf. So even if they were prescribed and we tried to apply for the exceptional access benefit, we tried to apply for that so many times and it's gotten denied every time because oh, well, those are just off-the-shelf drugs you take for allergies. I'm like, right, but I take them, I take four of the tablets every day. You're supposed to take one. I take four of them every single day of the year. It kind of adds up. Yeah. And so I order those meds from Amazon US. This is the funny thing, too, because, like, there's the stereotype of the American crossing the border to come and get their meds from Canada. Yeah. I order most of my meds off of Amazon US because I can get my antihistamines for, like, five or ten cents a pill, if i go to walmart here i can get them for 30 cents a pill which i can't get to walmart because i don't have a car <laughs> or i can get them from the local pharmacy for 50 cents a pill or i can get them prescribed for 75 cents a pill
0: like really? this is working. Are yeah. OTC meds taxed in Ontario? I don't know that. Or like, I don't remember. Like, do they have HST? That is a good question. I don't think they are. Just because this is a weird thing here, probably also there, about like weed. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's sold both recreationally and medically. I know that yeah. OTC meds aren't recreational, but let's pretend for a second that they are. <laughs> it's like if you go to the dispensary to buy... I'm in Massachusetts, so a lot of them are there's medical dispensaries, and then when they made recreational use available, medical dispensaries basically applied for a license and then started selling recreationally. Oh, interesting. And maybe they're a rec-only now, but I don't think so. Because they also got shut down and locked down for a while. Anyway, the point is, you go to the same place, if you have a medical card, you don't pay tax. And if you are buying recreationally, you do pay tax, Mm -hmm. and it's taxed at 20%. Because it's like a sin tax. Like yeah. alcohol, if you go to the LCBO and you go to buy vodka and you're like, why is this ten <laughs> times as much as it would be in the States? And it's because it's Canada and it's because it's taxed. And so it's the same thing. Like sales yeah. tax in the States is much lower. And yeah. in Canada, you pay higher sales tax and you get health care. So maybe there's a reason <laughs> for it. But like in these like weird little idiosyncrasies, sometimes totally. prices get distorted. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, totally. Totally. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> the answer doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am extremely not for free market capitalism, but it also does mean you got like a lot of generic drug manufacturers and you can get off the shelf drugs for 10 cents, a yeah. bit, which can be helpful. Yeah. It's fundamentally a policy failure too. This could be addressed within policy. It's just they're not bothering because they think this affects like 5 or 10% of the people. Who cares? And right. they don't bother to think of those 5 or 10% are maybe some of the most vulnerable people. In our country. And like it's recognized too, because I remember when I was on OW, which is our unemployment benefit, I was talking to my caseworker about this and I had an amazing caseworker. She was a really rarely amazing, committed person. And I was talking to her about this and she said she gets it because there's another family that the kids all had pink eye or something. Maybe it was, it was lice. They were school age kids. So it was like yeah. some common school age thing. And the mother was in tears because she had four kids and she had to get the drops or light shampoo or whatever it was and it would not be covered under odb because it was available otc and this is the thing i think about too when i see people campaigning to make hormonal birth control non-prescription and i'm like if you do that you need to be really fucking sure it's still going to be available to the poorest people because as soon as you make it non-prescription it's going to end up getting kicked off of a lot of these poverty drug benefits. And like, that's not a thing that anyone really thinks about. Yeah. When I see people advocating for non prescription hormonal birth control, I see people advocating for something that they're unintentionally going to reduce access to some of the most vulnerable people who need it. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like,
0: it's... you don't realize this, but you're advocating for a luxury market. Yeah. It doesn't need to be that way, but it already is. Yeah we've seen it in so many other things when they become available commercially they're available commercially in such a way that they are only available commercially and they are only available to people who can afford commercial rates
2: yeah Yeah. and i I mean it's such a weird thing because i'm like i i want every drug to be non-prescription like i am not for medical gatekeeping But also you need to understand what you're doing when you do this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like you don't know what the mechanism is, but this one isn't working well.
2: I am all for everyone being able to decide what medications they need to take when. And just having the doctor there for guidance. But at the same time, within the systems we exist in. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Within the systems that we exist in and the number of cracks that you can fall through, it is easy Mm. to see how those might not have been accounted for in this particular initiative. Perhaps (laughs) all of them. Yeah. So yeah, so drug prices for you were also a factor. You're just aware of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I cannot even remember once again how I got on this tag. Oh yeah, I continued doing my research and doing my experiments. And like, I, I just started finding out more and more stuff. It all started to come in together in a way that like, if you were like writing this as a book, you'd be like, this is all coming together maybe a little bit too neatly. Yeah. Everything had started with the bleeding disorder. And the one thing that was always sort of bothering me about that was that they'd say, well, your platelet counts aren't low enough to cause spontaneous bleeding. And I'd be like, okay, but I get that. Yeah. And, and then they just turn and walk out of the room. I remember one time he just was like, mm, and just sort of like turned, and they never explained it. They don't do them anymore. But they used to do something called the bleeding time test, which like they do like a little automatic scalpel. and do do like a little like one centimeter long standardized depth and width cut in your arm. And they time the bleeding. And that would be to identify like essentially how effect of your clotting function is like your
0: coagulant yeah okay
2: yeah exactly i'd been tested for everything beyond the lupus and the aids and leukemia i was also tested for like von Willebrand for hemophilia like everything they could think of and it was nothing but i did have a couple bleeding time tests and they would always do the spiel at the start where they'd be like you know we'll let it go for up to 20 minutes if it goes for longer than 20 minutes we'll apply pressure to stop the bleeding so that you don't bleed too much don't worry, we never have to do this. And I'd be like, don't worry, you're going to. Yeah. They'd sort of laugh me like, oh, you're being cute. Like, no, 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 don't worry. We literally never have to do that. And I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah. 20 minutes would go by and they'd be like, oh. <laughs> Every time. And so like I maxed out the bleeding time tests, you know, and they never went anywhere with that. And so this was always like sort of a missing piece of the puzzle. And like that my platelet counts never matched up with the bleeding. For me, this was always like, I want to know why. Yeah. So it turns out that one of the other things that is contained in mast cell granules in which they release when they're overactive is heparin. Hmm. And of course heparin is an anticoagulant. But also if you have the opposite problem with me and you have a clotting disorder and you're on it long term to prevent clots, one of the things that it can cause is drug-induced low platelet counts. So I was like, interesting. Huh. <laughs> so, yeah, so I Honestly, one of the things I desperately want to try someday is to find a doctor who will, there's, is it protamine? There's one drug that is a heparin antagonist. And I like, desperately want to try it just because I want to see, I want to like know for sure. But I also found some like really admittedly very poor quality old in vitro studies from like the seventies that had found that vitamin C can antagonize heparin. So I started taking a high dose of vitamin C. And I have actually found that and it's probably also contributed to by the fact that I, I take muscle stabilizers now as well. But yeah, I don't get spontaneous hematomas anymore. I could shave my legs and nick them, and then five hours later, not notice that I have like a giant streak of blood down my leg. That yeah. and that be like, oh, that's why people have been freaking out when they podcast. I remember one time I was like playing badminton, like in undergrad and someone's like oh my god what did you do to your leg and i was like it was this huge smear blend i was like oh, i was shaving earlier yeah you're
0: like, it, was, <laughs> it was a long time ago it's over now as far as i'm concerned <laughs> and so yeah and like i
2: don't get spontaneous hematomas it used to be the cat would sit on my chest and then i'd have an egg on my chest or like i was wearing a watch and i'd have an egg on my wrist and that does not happen anymore so pretty sure but also i'd really like to try protamine one day because i just i want that win you know (laughs) yeah the data (laughs) yeah (laughs) i want the protamine i want the platelet count and i want the bleeding time test just to know for sure although it was really funny because my the hematologist i was seeing at the time lectured me about the vitamin C and about how it's dangerous to take supplements because you don't know exactly what's in them. And, you know, we've had patients come in in, in liver or bone marrow failure. And I was like, okay, well then what can you offer me? Otherwise I am I acknowledge what you're saying and I'm open. So what are you offering me? And she just repeated, well, we can't endorse you taking supplements. And that was just like, it was a circular conversation. We kept yeah. going back and forth. I was like, right, but okay. You understand that I'm saying I can't tolerate living this way anymore. So I'm going to need you to offer me an alternative well, we can't endorse you taking supplements. so it's like, good talk. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I hate how often and how many medical professionals have been so trained to completely reject. And like, I get it. People look for connections where they don't always exist. Fair enough. Yeah. I understand you probably get a ton of weird theories every day. But at the same time, it's wild how often doctors will be like, well, the thing that you're doing that's working for you, I don't support. Yeah, And you're like, I'm confused what you mean by that. Because it happens sometimes with diet, too, right? Where they're like, well, it, studies show that diet doesn't have an impact, so do that if it makes you feel good, but really, it shouldn't. And you're like, why am I trusting you with anything? It's fine if you don't like yes. have an explanation. This isn't your area of expertise, not a big deal. But when they're just like, Mm-mm, I don't think that that's true, you're like, okay. The allergist, too, the one who
2: had never heard of histamine being involved in sleep-wake cycle, which is like chronobiology 101, but whatever. I told him I was taking the Benadryl and he's like, I would not recommend that. I mean, it makes you fall asleep, but it doesn't give you good sleep architecture. And there have been studies that have found that it causes cognitive decline with long-term use. And I'm like, right. But I mean, it doesn't give normal sleep architecture to people who have not mast cell disorders yeah like i don't so when (laughs) i have an abnormal sleep architecture that appears to be caused by my mast cell disorder so you think maybe it might actually work for me in a way it doesn't work for people who have a different sleep issue i don't know and then also like the cognitive decline studies i'm like i know the studies you're talking about and they were done on elderly people who have constitutively decreased cholinergic tone already taking it during the day in long-term care settings. I'm taking it at night. I have symptoms that are indicating I probably have increased cholinergic tone. Why are you thinking these studies apply to me? (laughs)
0: Like, Yeah, it's amazing how often that (laughs) continues to come up where you're like, yes. I hear that a typical body responds to this in this way and I believe I've been trying to tell you for decades that my body is in fact not typical so this information may be irrelevant even if it is very helpful to people with typical bodies. I don't know. Baby. Yeah there's like
2: so little criticality in their training and in what
0: they do it's just it's absolutely wild it's so interesting i think now too as like a thought exercise that is fruitless to just be like what would it look like if we were starting from scratch right now because i can see how much of this is just rooted in a history that is no longer relevant we know different things than we knew when medical schools were founded to keep women and black people out of medicine. We know yeah. different things than we knew then when the entire medical board was established like for that purpose to shut down other medical schools and only let white men be doctors. That has shaped all of our care. This is a United States example, although I know that that didn't only happen here. Our medicine in North America, in the UK, in a lot of Europe, like we're all kind of coming from this same one like how do we keep everybody else out of this field by making it not helpful and kind of confusing?
2: Oh, oh my God. So this is like one of my special interests, but looking at like medieval <laughs> medical history and like this is, cause one of the things I've always been so interested in is like, when did we get into this idea that it is dangerous to treat yourself? Because it's such a knee jerk reaction. This is a large part of why I stopped being as active in Facebook chronic illness groups because I'd talk about this stuff and I'd have, my posts would get deleted. They have disclaimers. And I understand why they're also wanting to protect themselves like from liability. And there yeah. are also like there are predatory like MLM people who go and be like, hey, have you tried this essential
0: oil? Yeah. It's hard for that reason.
2: Yeah, but there's also this knee-jerk reaction that, oh my God, that's so dangerous. And I'm like, I've literally had serotonin syndrome because of a medicine that I was prescribed. And then also the doctor didn't recognize the serotonin syndrome because it wasn't on the monograph. How am I supposed to believe that this is more dangerous? It is dangerous. Yeah. All of this is dangerous. Yeah. And like, why is this not an acceptable informed risk that I can take? Why is it perceived as so much riskier? It's really interesting because there's this case from, I think the 1400s in France. And it's this woman called Jacqueline de Felicie. She was one of the first trials of unlicensed practice of medicine. And so she was a woman who was obviously very well educated because she was reading and using the same texts that these among the first professional, academically educated doctors were using. She was using the same treatments, so therefore was obviously reading the same text as them, was often actually having better outcomes. And so she was prosecuted for the unlicensed practice of medicine. And it's thought that it was in part because... She was threatening their professional investment because she was having better success rates than yeah. they were. And quackery is a thing that existed, but the equation of self and community and lay medicine with quackery, with risk, it was about protecting these men's professional investments. And it was all white men because those were, as you said, the only ones who were allowed into the medical schools. And it was all about, in the early emergence of capitalism, protecting their professional investment. Yeah. like.
0: <laughs> There are so many things that I know that we could talk about for a very long time. <laughs> but like, it's so weird how... So this is super like Anglo-centric, but the distinction between midwives and doctors, historically, I I know that it's kind of changed now. It was like, midwives are in the community. They're probably more affordable. They're probably bartering. And then doctors are like a gentleman profession who have gone to like abstractly discuss their ideas for a few years instead of apprenticing typically or like you'll apprentice after and then be like, okay, cool. I know everything I need to know. And also I don't get my hands dirty. It's just an entirely different way of approaching somebody's body. And one yeah. of them is like a lot more about knowing that they're a person than the other one. mm
2: mm-hmm that's exactly how you get medically yes. invisible illness, right? Because when your entire practice is about mapping the physical issues, the physical lesions or whatever of the body, all of a sudden you lose all the things that can't be mapped, Yeah. <laughs> right? And that doesn't even mean that there is nothing to be mapped but it means that they haven't been mapped yet. Yeah. And there's like no impetus to map them because all you're concerned is mapping. Yeah. So if you can't connect it to the, the physical site in the body, suddenly it's psychosomatic, it's moral, it's willpower. And it's not that guy's problem anymore. Exactly. It's either fix it yourself, improve your life, stop thinking about your body so much, or let's refer you to a psychiatrist.
0: One or the other. (laughs) I love it here. (laughs) I have one more question that I think we might have actually skipped over. (laughs) When did you find out you were hypermobile? When was that Mm. identified for you? Yeah,
2: it was when this doctor who is... Hypermobile reached out to me, and I think I may have said no. I don't think I'm hypermobile to her, and I think she was the one who was like, "Yeah, no, hypermobility doesn't mean what you think it means." Yeah. And it was at that point, like, okay, but have you checked? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think she sent me or mention to me, the bait and score, mm-hmm. and I saw the thing with the knees. And I have always had backwards knees. Yeah. I'm the kind of person that someone would take a picture and like post on Reddit, be like, "What the fuck is with this person's knees?" My ex really like Mass Effect, and I wasn't into Mass Effect yet at that point. I wasn't into video games when we were going out, but he really liked the character Tali and said that part of the reason he liked the character Tali was because she was... I don't know if you know about Mass Effect not enough okay there's a race called the quarians and they have to wear environmental suits because they they had to escape their home planet and they're okay. allergic to the air yeah. everywhere else so they have to wear environmental suits and also their legs bend backwards <laughs> and so he liked the character tolly because she reminded him of me and in hindsight i'm like oh yeah i mean maybe we should have connected some dots there really like, that is actually very
0: accurate in ways <laughs> that i would not have understood at that time <laughs>
2: Yeah, so anyway, so the knees thing, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is the very first thing I started complaining about that got dismissed by doctors was I learned left from right when I was about four, because my left knee was the one that always hurt. Then my right knee started hurting, too, when I was around seven or eight. I remember that I was around eight, and I remember very specifically complaining to my parents and my doctors that it felt like my kneecaps were popping out of place. That was just growing pains.
0: As a euphemism, it feels like what I imagine it would feel like if this actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like,
2: oh, oh, they actually were. Yeah. Cool. And then I started realizing, I was like, oh, wait, my shoulder's sort of like clunking. And then it feels like it's in the wrong spot. It actually is. (laughs) I I remember I was following, I think it was Ace Ratcliffe. It's one of the first EDS people I followed. And I remember them talking about how like their fingers dislocate multiple times a day and how like they can't peel an orange. And I was like, oh, wow, that must suck. Like, I'm not that bad. No, I wasn't that bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's like the worst part I think if you come into it this specific way which a lot of us do where you're like I realized I was sick I like become a part of the disability community I'm like identifying with certain parts of my experience and I'm reading these other experiences like that sounds terrible (laughs) subluxations and dislocations I think are like I mean of course for hypermobility like the most common but it's like I feel like I was reading people talking about subluxations for years and then it wasn't until I dislocated my shoulder this March that I was like oh
2: Yeah. I I was still sort of learning what it felt like and what it meant. I accepted the fact that I was hypermobile. I wasn't diagnosed yet. Someone who I knew through an illness group donated a shitty transfer chair to me because I'd sort of like I was sort of like jokingly talking about like, God, I wish I had a chair. And they're like, wait, do you like mean it?
0: Yeah. Do you really want one?
2: Yeah. They work for vendors, so they donated this free one to me. And it was really great in the way that it helped me to learn that I could benefit from a chair. But also it was terrible for my shoulders because it was 35 pounds. Yeah. It was a folding frame, so it was not, you know, it had terrible suspension. Yeah. And the wheels were too far back. You know, it was just bad. I, I got accepted to a conference on, I think it was chronic pain, actually. And this I was still sort of doing like some conference presentations here and there, hoping maybe I could do a PhD eventually. And my parents as a Christmas friend, they're like, okay, fine, go and visit your friends in the UK. And so I took my chair and I was like wheeling around London and like, I remember I was like almost crying and I do not, cry. I'm not a crier, not as a braggy thing. Like it actually causes problems in like medical space. because I'll be like, I'm in level 10 pain and I'm like not crying. I'm yeah. just like stone faced. Yeah. I was almost feeling ready to cry because of how badly my shoulder hurt. And I spent the entire week wheeling around London like this. And then I got home. And it was still really bad. And then someone in one of the EDS groups that I joined on Facebook was talking about how to reset your shoulder. And I was like, I wonder, maybe I should try this. Maybe that's what's going on. And then I I managed to reduce my shoulder and this massive clunk. And I was like, I've been wheeling around with a dislocated shoulder for a week and
0: a half. Yeah, mine was over a week and I didn't realize until it popped back in not on purpose. And I was like, oh my God. God, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, and the thing was, it hurt
2: horrifically when I do anything, but it wasn't actually the dislocation, it was the muscles seizing up. Yeah, My dislocations themselves don't really hurt. They're uncomfortable. I've used the the metaphor of the pebble in your shoe, but it literally, I feel like I've got a pebble in my joint. Like something's grinding there that shouldn't be. And now I know what that feeling means. Back then I didn't know what that meant. It's like, oh, I just got that weird pebble feeling.
0: And if you tell a doctor that you have, like, roving joint pain, they're like, cool, you have an inflammatory problem. Not all of your joints are bad. They're like, either you have one bad joint or you have an inflammatory problem. If you have all bad joints, it's not a joint problem. And you're like, oh, that's comforting.
2: (laughs) Occasionally, I would convince someone that maybe, like, let's just rule something out. And they test me for, like, C-reactive protein and, like, maybe ANA. Yeah. Just to check for lupus one more
0: time. Yeah. Or like rheumatoid factor.
2: Yeah. Know. Yeah. And those will come back negative. And then this is a whole other conversation. But like the fact that you'll say there's something wrong. They'll test the most common, obvious thing. It comes back negative And that's just the end of the road. Yeah. And then they wonder why people are disappointed when their tests come back negative. It's like maybe because they know that that's the end of the road and they're not going to get any more prospective help like
0: Yeah. Because it never means let's <laughs> ask other questions. It always yeah. means so your question is answered. And you're like, to be clear, my question wasn't do I have arthritis? It was what is wrong with me? Yeah. What is wrong with <laughs> me? So by answering the question, do I have arthritis with no, that's all we've answered. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. But anyway, yeah, with the pain, so like for me, the, the dislocation itself doesn't hurt, but what hurts is my muscles seize up to protect the joint. My muscles are being like overly helpful, but actually really ineffectual because they're like, oh, we're going to help. And they seize up and then they just clunk it out again. And I'm like, yeah. why did you do Like, Please stop helping. You <laughs> you're not holding it right. It's like when my dog is being uselessly helpful too, I'm like, you, you're not helping in the way that you think you are. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, now, a couple months ago, I started PT for hypermobility and I have now just like back exercises and very slowly I'm realizing that I haven't been taping or bracing my shoulder as much and my shoulder's been a problem for years and years and years and I'm like, oh, I've yeah. been seized for years and years and years and I've just been holding it in the wrong place and I had no idea why my shoulder was just hanging all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's like addressable, a little. You still have a problem. <laughs>
2: This is one of my other self-treatment things. And honestly, this is my most witchy, non-empirical thing. I was like going to the local herb farm and just buying some plants for myself when I was getting ready to move to my new place. And they had a plant called Marl Root. And they mentioned that it's used to help with muscle endurance in athletes in Siberia. I just had a hunch. This is the most non-scientific whatever. Like once again, hi doctors. Yeah. I am obviously a hypochondriac. Yeah. Um, but I was like, Hmm. And so I bought this herb, but it's, you use the root and it's like a pain in the ass to harvest. So instead I just ordered some of the powdered root and I started taking it. Cause this is the thing I would get to a point, like when I was doing any kind of physical exertion, whether it was deliberate exercise or like, I, I was actively allergic to exercise for one thing. This was a whole other thing in my life. They'd tell me to exercise and I would manage to stick to it for a couple of weeks. And I'd always feel like I had the flu after. I would be sneezing. I'd have the runs. I'd feel like I was running a fever. Turns out, Mast cells triggered by exercise. But I also, you know, that lactic acid feeling in your muscles, that burning feeling that builds up. I'd hit that within like five or 10 minutes and then it just wouldn't go away. It just wouldn't dissipate at all. I suspect there's something with lactic acid metabolism and like a lot of people with ME CFS have been looking at that too, like mitochondrial issues.
0: Yeah, that sounds so much like an ME thing. Yeah. Which is kind of a specious. There's so much overlap. Yeah. But anyway, the research is happening under that umbrella is the best way to think about it.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so i sort of had this hunch that there was like a lactic acid issue just because of that sensation. And I was like, hmm, they use it to improve like oxygen metabolism. And then sure enough, I took it. And like the next day, again, this is like, it sounds fake. Cause I'm like the next day I was better, but like I was wheeling up a hill. I started to feel the burn and I stopped for 10 seconds and the burn faded away.
0: As it is supposed to.
2: And I was like, what? Yeah, We wheel like on average five kilometers a day now. And (laughs) like, I have literally never been able to exercise in my life. And like the runner's high, like the first time I felt that I was like, this feels really good. This is why people like exercising. Oh, I get it now.
0: It does feel good.
2: Yeah. I like exercising, who knew? I'm not just like lazy and like trying to put it off and like no pain, no gain. And I'm just, no, actually it feels completely different.
0: (laughs) I think that's also, like, one of those clarifying moments about invisibility, and also when things work really quickly, is that you look back and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, nobody believed me because things weren't working the way that they were supposed to be. Like, that was also a defining Mm -hmm. feature. And then you get to this point and you're like, oh, yeah, no, they had no idea. Like... I had no idea. I assumed everyone's embodied experience was similar and I was handling it poorly and they had no idea. And so (laughs) they were treating me like I was responding poorly. And that's what made it invisible.
2: Exactly. It's yeah, there's just this assumption, like when we see discourse about like healthy versus unhealthy food on Twitter, I'm like, this is super gross and TMI, but like I can eat quinoa and vegetables. Like I'll make myself a really nice salad The next morning, I will have a really nice salad in my toilet bowl. It's
0: not doing what it's supposed to be doing.
2: (laughs) Pristine, in the toilet, really difficult to flush. And I'm like, you can't tell me that things are universally healthy or unhealthy. I
0: like that I'm getting the nutrition from this meal.
2: (laughs) Right? (laughs) And it's the same with exercise. Yes, if your body's working properly, exercise will help. And this is the thing, now that I exercise regularly, my pain levels are at the lowest they've ever been. Like I am in so much less pain consistently, but I had to get to a point where the exercise was not actively making me sicker first.
0: It can cause harm. We look at, not we, we don't, but the culture looks at exercise as like (laughs) neutral at worst. It'll either help or it will be neutral. And that is a very dangerous perspective as we know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you realize your shoulder had been dislocating. Have you gone to a doctor to ask about hypermobility yet? Or is that something that you do in this?
2: At that point, I think I was waiting on the referral to the EDS clinic and I got the referral to the EDS clinic. They begrudgingly diagnosed me with hypermobile spectrum disorder, which is still on paper from the most official people who are most entitled to name these things in this province. Officially, I have hypermobile spectrum disorder. All of my other doctors just go ahead and call it HEDS. So I call it HED. I'm like, fuck it. You know what? I I have at least three other MDs calling it that. No one else understands HSD. That clinic was awful. I have HED. fine. Whatever. I'd sort of recognized it slightly before I went to the appointment. I got the official diagnosis, whatever it was, like a couple months later. I think it was later that year. And then the mast cell and the POTS sort of followed from that. all sort of within a span of a year. Finally, all the answers came together.
0: Magically. (laughs)
2: All yeah. on own. <laughs> It's really funny, too, because so predictably, when I first brought the possibility of EDS to my family doctor, you know what the response was. That's really rare. It's very, very rare. No one has that. Yeah, exactly. And it's also really funny because I remember I'd been in the ER that summer because I was having chest pains after I'd started on another stimulant for my narcolepsy. This was around the time I was starting to learn about it. I didn't think I had it yet, but I knew some people who had it. And I remember we were sitting in this the gurney with the curtain around it and the ER doc, the on-call doc was in the next one talking to a kid who'd had a laceration. The mother was explaining that he had Ehlers-Danlos and the doctor was like, what's that? And I remember I was sitting there and I was like, I want to say it. I want to say it. I want to say me. But anyway, so then I, I brought it to my family doctor and she was like, it's incredibly rare. I think we only have one other person. I was like, I know who that is, it's that kid from the other month. And then it was really funny because I was talking to her, I had a telehealth appointment with her last month. and. She's got four or five other patients with EDS Mysterious.
0: Mysteriously. <laughs> yeah. You've talked about this in general a bunch of times, but it's like so interesting how they also flag what makes something worth looking into. Doctors have seen nobody, so they think it means nothing. And then they see one and then they like, or have learned about it. So they have like the template patient and then they're one patient and they're like, okay, this is the shape of this disease. And it's like, it probably isn't. The only reason that I got referred to a geneticist is because I'm tall and my my neurologist, I like. This is not really about him. But like the thing that he kept saying out loud as he was like, yeah, we should rule this out was like, because you might have Marfan syndrome because you're tall. And I like don't really have Marfan's characteristics, but I am tall Mm -hmm. and like... It's, a, it's kind of like vascular EDS, only obviously vascular EDS is much less well known, but they're like, oh, that one has complications that we know that we want to watch out for, so we should rule it out. Vascular EDS and Marfan syndrome both get that response, but like hypermobility spectrum slash HEDS are like, why would we diagnose it? You're like, oh, I don't know, because it's in the same family of disorders. And we're probably going to find a lot of really (laughs) serious complications down the road. And if we already know what the patient population is, then we'll have the patient population already. Like a million reasons. I don't know. (laughs) I also know a couple people, even with
2: VEDS, who've had that question asked. And they're like, well, it's it's fatal and incurable. Why would you want to know you have it? And it's like. Because if I go to the ER and I'm like, you need to image my chest right away, they will. Yes, it's potentially fatal. It's less potentially fatal if I can get the right treatment very quickly, which is kind of imperative. Yeah, like if
0: I know about it.
2: Yeah, when you've got like an aortic dissection, you kind of want to get the right treatment fast. It's kind of like the big thing that determines whether it's going to work or not. And that's kind of dependent
0: on having a diagnosis. And it's like, as we (laughs) learn more about like, and this, this is so relevant to the ME structural stuff. It's like, oh, OK, and we're learning a ton of other comorbidities that were like, never seen as that before. And guess what? If you don't have an EDS diagnosis, no doctor is going to screen you for like CCI, for thoracic mm-hmm. outlet syndrome, for whatever it is, tethered cord. You're not going to get randomly screened for that. So all of a sudden, yeah. we have this huge problem. It's a huge bottleneck where people can't get screened for complications because no one will ever diagnose them. I know a lot of people know that. Now I'm in such a Twitter bubble from the year that we've all had. This whole batch of episodes, I think I say this another episode, this whole batch of episodes is going to be so weird because I'm like, there's been a very intense Twitter conversation happening all the time. And if you're a listener who happened not to be aware of it, you might notice it like shift in tone. Not that it's a different show, but just, like, it's been immersive. It's been an immersive year. So you have HSD slash HEDS. And I've definitely talked about this distinction before, so we don't need to talk about what that means. (laughs) Distinction, I said with air quotes. Okay, cool. So you got to that point, blah, blah, blah. Over the course of it, we've been out of order a bunch of times, which is totally fine. But let's imagine you're at your parents' house, you're starting to get some stability, you have some names... We're so close to the present, really. Tell me more. <laughs> All right, yeah. So, I mean, at that point, it was really... I needed
2: to find a way just to afford moving into my own space. And, I mean, this was a struggle. I was also... By this point, I was able to apply for ODSP and, and get ODSP and have slightly more money. Not really enough to live on, but, like,
1: mm-hmm. slightly
2: more. Enough to occasionally buy medications and things. Importantly. Things. <laughs> While also still having to live with my parents because I couldn't afford rent in a real place. So I applied to like social housing. This is the most social model my disabled experience has ever come. Like this is is the most relevant the social model has ever been to me. The waitlist for social housing, I got on the priority waitlist because of the issues that were going on at home. And because for my mental health, I desperately needed to get out. So I got on the priority waitlist, which was at least three years. It's a priority waitlist for people who desperately need to get out of their living situation. Cause it's unsafe for them. The regular waitlist was upwards of 10 years. And I remember I was like emailing them cause I was asking, I think there was like one space that I was like thinking of applying to, but it wasn't ideal. And I was like, if I get this and then decline it, is that going to bump me down the waitlist? And they're like, don't even worry about that we just approved someone who's been on since 2001 and I was like okay that's great. Hardening. Yeah I was looking at house share situations in Toronto and this is the thing like none of those are accessible they're all
0: like in old houses on the second floor and I was like oh, yeah Toronto everything there's high rises that are maybe elevator accessible but there aren't a ton and most of them are condos which are super expensive and everything else is stairs and Every bathroom in a public business is in the basement. Yeah, it's so
2: great. And I remember I was looking on the Toronto Life, how to find a place to rent affordably for millennials. And they were like, look at older walk-up buildings because they're cheaper. And I was like,
0: thanks, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> My cheapest apartment in Toronto was a basement apartment that didn't have a window in the living room, which is illegal for egress reasons. Well, it doesn't need one in the living room. There weren't any. There was like a tiny one in the... Bedroom that I could not have fit out of. That's what makes it illegal. But you're like, great, I want to live in this environment as a person who realizes that my body has a lot of very specific needs.
2: Yeah, it's great. I also was able to apply for something called the portable housing benefit,
0: which is also for people who are
2: on the priority waitlist who very much need to get out of their living situation. And the idea is it tops up whatever you get from your social benefits. or It it tops you up in order to be able to get a place and mark your rent. But the thing was too, they couldn't tell me how they calculate it. So I had no idea. And they're like, well, we can't tell you exactly. And I was like, well, how do I know if I can find a place? I don't know how much you're gonna cover me for. I don't know if any of the places I'm looking at are even vaguely reasonable. And they like,
0: couldn't give me an answer. Is it like, it wouldn't be determined until you filed your taxes and it was determined for you? It wasn't even that because like my taxes, I wasn't
2: even earning money. The best they could tell me is it depends on the region you're in the specific rent of the apartment Mm -hmm. and your
0: income. It's a mystery formula that we can't tell you.
2: Yeah, they also couldn't tell me how any of those three things were actually related in a way that I could calculate it. So I actually I went on that. And then I declined it for a while. And I was like, I'm just gonna try and save up money for a couple years maybe i can save up enough for down payment on a condo in like fucking elliot lake or something (laughs) yes
0: just for context for everyone else (laughs) elliot lake is the retirement capital of north of not north america that would be a big lie of northern ontario
2: with slightly elevated background radiation levels because of the old uranium
0: mine this (laughs) is One of my favorite things that I once knew about Elliott Lake is that like because it's the retirement capital of Northern Ontario, they have a really active senior population that like does like citizen on patrol, like neighborhood watch stuff.
2: Nice.
0: This is really out of date Elliott Lake information. I just want you to know. But that's my favorite Elliott Lake fact. I'm sorry, everyone listening, most of you will not have Elliot Lake.
2: <laughs> Extremely specific Northern Ontario knowledge. <laughs> Um, yeah so I was like that's like the only place in Ontario you can get a condo for like less than 50,000 and I was like maybe I can like hang in here for like two or three more years not spend money on anything else just save up my ODSP checks but like things were getting really bad at home so I went back on the portable housing benefit I finally got them to agree I was like if I send you a list of apartments can you estimate what I would get for that so I sent them like five apartments from every city in Ontario (laughs) gradually and I figured out roughly which city I could get the best balance between the benefit and like the average rent for a reasonably accessible one bedroom I say reasonably accessible with an elevator that's literally all I'm looking for here this is the thing too it's always I love it here like people be like so what led you to decide to move to Kingston and I'm like well I looked at every metropolitan area in Ontario and I compared the average rent for a one bedroom in a building with an elevator with the amount that I could get in that city on the portable house benefit and Kingston had the smallest discrepancy and they're like
0: sounds fun oh (laughs) it's like this conversation killer right there (laughs) yeah my situation is not the same but kind of the same which is that I was like I need to live somewhere that's mold free and I need to live in a housing market that allows me to do a proper mold screen and that ruled out every city on this continent so here I am
2: yeah it's like very I love it they're expecting to be like Oh, I have friends here, or, oh, it's a really pretty city. And I'm like, nope, nope, literally just smallest gap between what I could afford and what I could get.
0: You were doing something (laughs) right, Kingston, you just didn't know it.
2: Yeah. And it's funny, too, because it's not even like the rent here is particularly low. I think it's skewed because of the way they calculate the average rent for one bedroom. Because the thing is, Toronto has a lot of, like, basement units and, like, house shares. Which artificially dragged down the calculated average market rent in comparison to like what I actually needed. Whereas Kingston. There's probably just
0: not that tier of or that tier of housing is much smaller.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it just wasn't skewed as much. I moved here and yeah. And so like around two and a half or so years ago too, I also started working again in a very chronically ill disabled way I'm working with another chronically ill person Liz Jackson we met each other through Twitter we both followed each other and then sort of discovered how aligned we were in the kinds of work that we wanted to be doing Liz had a little bit of funding that she'd been able to secure and so we started working together and like I sort of wasn't able to work very effectively until I left my parents' house and was in an environment where my mental health was a little more stable. <laughs> but yeah, that's like, that's sort of where we're at now. Like I moved here, I uh, use a wheelchair so I can actually get to the grocery store, which is rad. It's nice being able to like buy groceries. <laughs> um,
0: this is when you're like, ah, oh, yes, it is nice to have independence yes. <laughs> through accommodations. I understand that model completely right now. <laughs>
2: at the same time, I wasn't very confident with my chair. And I also hadn't quite put together the muscle fatigue exercise thing yet. I wasn't using my chair frequently enough. I still even up to last year, I used my wheelchair like maybe 25% of the time when I absolutely could not do the thing without using it. So like groceries, because I physically cannot carry groceries that far without bad things happening so I would use a chair for that but like when I was walking the dog like technically I don't need it to walk the dog I can walk like a kilometer without my chair and yes it hurts and yes I'll get annoyed at her for stopping to stiff because I'm starting to get dizzy and I will have a panic attack when someone comes up to say hi because I don't know how long they're going to keep talking and I might pass out but like technically I can walk I wasn't using it enough and I hadn't built up the arm strength so then when winter came I just didn't go out winter is awful. Cause like slippery surfaces and hypermobility do not go well together. And so like when COVID rolled around, like it literally just as though my winter has lasted for 11 months now because nothing changed. When lockdown started, I'd been ordering groceries. I'd at most been going a block from my house with the dog because I couldn't walk on the snow. So like really literally nothing changed when lockdown started in March. It was just like winter kept going for me. But At the same time, I started realizing I couldn't take her to the dog park anymore. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start using my chair so we can go farther. And then I was like, oh, everything hurts so much less now. Hmm. (laughs) Maybe I should just use this all the time. Yeah. Wild. (laughs) And then so like we started, they built a bike trail just behind here last year. And I was like, oh, let's try using it. And we went like farther than we'd ever gone and like my shoulders were killing me but i i pushed through it like you know the delayed onset pain i've never really tried to push through that before but i actually before when i tried to push through it it would just get worse and worse and worse over the course of days so it never seemed meaningful but this time i like pushed through it and got through it three days later i was like oh oh, now it's not hurting to do this route again. It's like you do the same thing over and over again and it stops hurting as much, which apparently is also how exercise is supposed to work for normal bodies.
0: And they're like, no pain, no gain. (laughs) And you're like, oh, okay, yeah. And meanwhile, I've just been dislocated my shoulder every time I lift weights. (laughs) Is that what you meant?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh, the pain doesn't keep getting worse and worse. It eventually stops. Okay. So now we just, yeah, we did... 12 kilometers the other day which was like I'm so proud of we went all around the city it was amazing and it's good now it's just so weird to have very basic things in your life work the way you've always heard they're supposed to work
0: yeah especially because it's like at the beginning it's like it's weird that people always say that because it does not match my experience and so I don't know why they keep repeating it and then eventually you're like oh it did match their experience and then eventually you're like, and <laughs> yeah. I can find an adaptive, like, an alternative. There's three different steps to realizing that, in fact, it wasn't meant to be as terrible as it has been for most of your life.
2: Yeah, and also, like, the fact that I was fighting it terrible didn't just mean that I'm, like, a giant wimp, apparently. Like, actually, no, the things I'm experiencing would make most of these no pain, no gain exercise people cry
0: <laughs> yeah they would not be like oh yeah this is nothing <laughs> yeah. like push through it They'd be like, this should have medical attention <laughs> like interesting <laughs> interesting <laughs> yeah it's wild yeah. this is another beef thing when people are like you know sick people who just want to get some stability actually want to get better and not be disabled anymore this is literally the, the distinction that you've described you're like no i just want to live in the world where things work the way that they're supposed to but it was not clear to me how to create that world for a really long time.
2: Yeah. This is, so I've also now gotten a shoulder brace and it's really funny because it's a whole other thing. I'm like realizing that when I wear it and when I wheel, when I walk, I'm like using completely different muscle groups. When I was a kid, I used to be like, I wish I could get a back brace, which again, really (laughs) weird thing for a kid to wish for. Like normally that's not your dream as a kid. And they'd say, well, no, it's just a muscular problem. What you need is exercise. But the thing is, when all of your muscles and joints are like hanging and falling all over the place and your muscles are trying to do the work of holding your joints together, it's very hard to focus on activating a particular muscle group when everything else is wrong. And so now I'm realizing when my shoulders anchored in place, I use my abs, which are like, my abs are very sad. They're like non-existent, but now I'm starting to use them. And this is part of also why walking is so hard because when you have non-existent abs, walking is Mm -hmm. really hard on your back (laughs) now when I wear my shoulder brace in my chair it's like an ab workout and I'm just so looking forward to the moment when I can go into my doctor's office and walk like completely stably not because I want to walk and not because I'm going to stop using my chair but just so I can be like do you know why I'm walking it's because of my chair and my shoulder brace (laughs) I just want to rub it in their faces literally and then I'm going to go back and get the chair
0: (laughs) Another like, thing that's really difficult about talking about dynamic mobility like this is that so much of our language around mobility disability, yeah, those are the right words together, was developed <laughs> by scholars who were paralyzed. And it's like, hey, that's cool. That's just like, a, in every way, different experience. Everything about it, basically.
2: Yeah, well, this is like the whole social model, too. Like, this is... You're going to get flamed so hard on disability Twitter for that. But the social model was developed by people who were paralyzed and who I think who had muscular dystrophy, medically visible disabilities. And that's not to say that what they created in that model is invalid. It described Mm -hmm. their experiences very well. It was never developed to describe the experiences of people with medically invisible disabilities. We talk about the medical model and how under the gaze of the medical model, the outcome is to cure disability. And I'm like, not if you're medically invisibly disabled. Like they have never wanted to cure because to desire cure for me would be yeah. to acknowledge I was disabled in the first place. It's just a whole part of the history that's missing. We talk about the history of disability and we talk about freak shows. We talk about clinical photographs and like the grand rounds parades that they would be subjected to as kids. That's not my history. My history is Colin and the secret garden who
0: miraculously was able to walk once he got fresh air. Probably literally, frankly. <laughs> one of the things that I find so hard when talking about mobility is like, my mobility fluctuates so much. And so when I can walk, I do feel like that's a good thing. Not because I think that walking as a form of yeah. mobility is superior, but because when my body specifically has the capacity to walk, it also has the capacity to think and feed itself and water itself and get to the bathroom. My mobility issue is not a mobility issue. It's like mostly an autonomic nervous system issue. Sometimes people are like, talking about walking is like it's good, it's like shaming people. And I'm like, okay, one, I would never like do a standalone tweet that was like walking is great because they don't think that or (laughs) ever want to perpetuate it in any way. But just being like, I'm having a great day. Or like sometimes you wake up and you're like, I haven't used my mobility aid in a while or whatever. I don't think I'm cured. I don't think I'm better off not needing it. I'm just like, huh, my nervous system must be really happy right now. And that is worth celebrating. There's this like cultural barrier sometimes in, it's a little bit inter, a little bit intra where you're like, hey, I'm not saying that not walking is bad. I'm saying that having an autonomic nervous system that shuts down every single one of your systems is pretty uncomfortable we're just having different yes. conversations right now and this i think like anybody who's listening who's not on disability twitter is going to be like you guys have a lot of strong energy about this issue that i have never considered before <laughs> this is really niche <laughs> these are themes that come up a lot and like pushback that come up a lot and you're like okay i'm really interrogating it i want to interrogate my own ableism a lot i'm sure there's a lot i haven't found yet but like i feel very confident that that's not what this thing is about Exactly.
2: Yeah. If you associate a particular activity or or mode of mobility with feeling better, then of course you can have positive associations with that.
0: Yeah. Dysautonomia is so great in this way too, because it's like so visible when you know what to look for, but so invisible diagnostically clearly, since it's like, it boggles my mind. Like so many people now are still not getting screened for it when there's no, I mean, maybe that'll change because of long COVID. But like, it's so invisible. And as soon as you know about it, it's visible. And then you can be like, oh, cool. I'm tracking it. I'm making different choices. I'm keeping my body in different postures. A whole world opens up where you're like, oh, cool. I completely see this outside of the walking, not walking binary now. But I never had the tools or language to observe and evaluate that before. So here we are. (laughs) But like, when we think about like what
2: assistive technology is too, talking about different postures, I spend most of my time on the couch or the bed because it's just easier even than sitting upright. And for a variety of reasons, there's postural, there's also, my abs are still not great. So my hips and my back start to hurt if I'm sitting upright at a desk for ages. I get circulation issues in my feet and then they start to go numb. Mm -hmm. Like just a lot of stuff. I'm either reclining on my couch where I can sort of lean or in my bed. And so for me, like assistive technology is like my overbed table and my laptop. And those are not things that ever really get Count and this is going back to like the design conversation too, like those are not things that get considered as assistive technologies. When people are evaluating digital accessibility, UX, they talk about assistive tech in terms of like screen readers and speech to text. And I'm like, have you considered how a laptop and a trackpad are assistive tech too? And like, that's again, invisible, invisible from the conversation. I would say that
0: one of the items that is like most desired by this community in the assistive tech world is just a way to mount your monitor while you're lying down oh my god yes (laughs) (laughs) this product exists there's like a really really expensive gaming product in this space that makes the rounds every once in a while and it's it's so interesting actually to me how this like tracks beside disability dongle. There is very little difference between a $2,000 gaming chair that you can like mount a monitor in and a wheelchair that can climb stairs. You're making this like luxury product instead of just making something that is good. I don't know, probably some disabled people who have a lot of resources have bought gaming chairs, I bet, but like, if you can't afford a gaming chair, you're just hacking together your own system, which is what most people do. But like, there's no reason this product hasn't been designed.
2: Yeah, I got a really fancy ski coat this summer and I got it in July because it occurred to me that if I looked in July, I might be able to get some good discounts and I could. But also like, this is the first time since I was under 18 that I could have had the financial access to something like that. And it has been a game changer in terms of going outside in Canadian November and not being in immense pain. But like, yeah, that shit's expensive. It it takes so much privilege to have been able to get a hold of that coat. And most people who are disabled probably still could not. I'm very lucky that I'm now in a position where I'm able to work part-time and able to access benefits that have helped me to do that. But like, this stuff is so expensive. And you know, there's a conversation around the straws, the plastic straw ban, and about how reframing something like that as a medical device will lead to increased expenses for people and that's absolutely an issue. But then there's also like the opposite, which is that coats and laptop stands and gaming chairs are not considered assistive tech devices. So there's no way to procure any kind of funding or insurance coverage for them. I need my coat as much as I need my wheelchair.
0: Yeah, there's so many cultural barriers to we we know this in general in disability, right? Like if you spend money and you're impoverished, people are going to be like you should never spend money on anything expensive. It doesn't matter if it makes your life better. And then there's like a pushback being like, hey, there's a crypto tax. Things just cost more. We kind of get that and there's discourse around that. And mm-hmm. I think part of the work with invisible disability, however we want to frame that in this moment, is being like, hey, there are a lot of invisible assistive devices that you don't know are being used that way. I know I'm basically repeating what you just said. But anyway, they're being used this way. And so it's not just how do you file them with insurance or whatever. Like, it's not just about what are the mechanisms that exist already. It's also like how much work has to be done socially to convince the people around you that you actually need that device, which... Again, not that it doesn't happen with devices that are coded as medical. It does happen with devices that are coded as medical. Mm -hmm. But it is different when it is not coded as medical and it is an access tool and people don't have a context for understanding that. So, yeah, it's it's wild because it's like people in our community, for the most part, just want to be able to do everything lying down. That's an access need. And it's hard to do a lot of things lying down right now because... As much as people who think about these things are thinking about, like, wow, we really do design spaces for bipeds, don't we? It's also like, oh, we really design spaces for people who can sit, don't we? We have the weirdest (laughs) intersection of people who can walk but can't sit, and then people who use chairs but, like... That must be its own thing, frankly, because sitting in a chair over time when you have orthostatic issues is probably frustrating. I
2: do not miss traveling for work. God. (laughs) Last December, we went to San Francisco and I got stuck at the Arizona airport for seven hours. And that was like the worst thing that has ever happened. (laughs) Also, when you have a wheelchair, it's not like you can just get out of it and lie down and take a nap because obviously you don't want anyone stealing your chair. I would have gone and laid down on the floor, but I was also like, I can't. So I was just just sitting for seven hours. It was the worst. That
0: I believe (laughs) because the first thing I do whenever I have to wait anywhere is move to the floor (laughs) so that my feet are effectively elevated. And or lie down wherever we are. <laughs> Whatever needs to happen. It's good. But yeah, we just need more spaces for people to lie down. This is like one of my top three strong opinions right now.
2: Yeah, and also I would say like for people to be unconscious safely in public. This is going back to when my narcolepsy was untreated. It's so scary. Like I was having a sleep attack. I was in London and I was staying with a friend who was working I decided to go to a museum and I started to feel a sleep attack coming on and I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't find anywhere to lie down because also hostile architecture, there is nowhere to lie down in London anymore.
0: And which we know is for unhoused people. Like we understand that both has nothing to do with us in quotes as if there's no intersection Mm -hmm. a very complicated (laughs) situation here. And also like it's collateral damage that it makes it hostile to disabled people.
2: Exactly. I would love to see if, there were a way to challenge hostile architecture through like ADA type equality act legislation that's a thing on the list of things I eventually want to try and do because I think that would be a really interesting way to apply that legislation and it's real like it is absolutely an accessibility barrier
0: too. Yeah because I've had that with syncope. I've never fainted from pots either but I also have vasovagal syncope so I've just like I've had a lot of public fainting issues and it's It's not set up for that if you're by yourself and you're precinctable, which I'm sure is not that different. Yeah, exactly. The the key thing
2: is you need to get somewhere you can lie down. And I remember I went into a cafe and I told them, I was like, I have narcolepsy. I need to doze. I ordered a coffee, but I was like, if I'm unconscious, don't call the cops or an ambulance. And then I remember I was sort of like dozing and I could hear someone saying, ooh, looks like someone had a fun night out. There's something so unsafe feeling about being unconscious in public and like, what are the ways we could? design spaces, and again, would be great from an accessibility perspective, but also from unhoused people, also from people who experience breaks with reality or people who are dealing with substance issues. Like they also need to be able to be, people were assuming I was drunk or high. The issue isn't that they were mistaken. It's that anyone who is struggling with altered consciousness in public should
0: have a space to be able to be unconscious in public safely. And it just i want to say one more thing which is that one thing that i really hate about it is i'm also like i'm not gonna call a cab like this like i'm not getting into a car especially in toronto where there's exactly Mm -hmm. one woman taxi driver so i'm going to make some gender assumptions and i'm sorry in this one moment but like statistically (laughs) you're almost certainly going to get a man as a cab driver and like there's some feelings there when you're like i'm pre thinkable and i one, yeah. I should be safe even if this were substance. And two, this is frequently mistaken mm-hmm. for substance. And like all of these things do not want me to yeah. get into a small enclosed space with a strange man. Yep. And that's like my safe <laughs> option to get out of public.
2: Yeah, it's a whole thing. And I mean that, none of that is ever really talked about in like access conversation.
0: No, I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah, like default assumption is that access includes you're conscious (laughs) and likely to remain so unless it is an actual medical crisis in which you need care and it's like oh no i don't need care i mean i would probably benefit from hydration but like yeah and i mean this (laughs) is a thing too like i know folks who who deal with seizure
2: disorders and epilepsy too like also in the states
0: don't call an ambulance
2: then they get the ambulance called on them and then they're a thousand dollars in debt like there's so many dimensions to that lack of safety when you deal with altered consciousness like yeah
0: that's a fun thing so many memories (laughs) of lying down on the side of the road just being like i am not exactly conscious oh yeah my syncope was like one fainting is kind of obvious and two that's like the only thing that was accurately named when i was 18 so when i was pretty young So, like, that's the only one that I've ever been, like, wandering around spaces being like, I have needs. I need to lie down. I need to get away from this disgusting picture that triggered my syncope. Thank you. Okay. We've been talking for about three hours. Is there anything that we have not gotten to that you knew that you wanted to talk about or that, like, is fresh on your brain now? Not really. I think we actually did pretty much cover
2: everything in a very like roundabout way yeah which is honestly how my brain works it's so nice talking to another person whose brain works that way cuz i'll go on like normal person podcasts and i'll be doing this like oh this also happened 10 years ago but it's tangentially related and it's just like a nightmare
0: yeah you're like do you even know what i'm talking about now <laughs> as i am deep into theory <laughs> yeah it's an adventure. I feel like it's been fun to be able to be like, just talk to me about whatever is important about the thing. And it's like, cool. We can have a way better conversation than I'm yeah. like, educate <laughs> me about your disease and or work.
1: Thank you for listening to episode 75 of no end in sight. You can find Alex on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Hagard spelled A L E X H A A G A A RD. You can find me on Twitter at fibrofuckboy, and if you want to support me directly and are in a position to, I have a Patreon where I post my poetry and other artistic endeavors at patreoncom magenta. You can find Brienne on Twitter and Instagram at bensb, and you can find many more conversations about chronic illness on Twitter at rtsfromthevoid. And don't forget, you can sign up to support the show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or, if you want to support the show but don't have a couple bucks to spare, we'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening!